That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash. And as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I mean, the fact that I'm here with you automatically uh, means I'm having a great time. And the fact that I'm rocking our new Boort and Scary merch because of you. Thank you yes, for that. Of um, for for not just not just for sending it, but for making it. I know I was there for half the process. It's it takes a while. It takes it a does. while. Uh, I'm a bit of a perfectionist about it. Yeah. Well, hey, your work pays off, and we appreciate you. Thank you. That was a collective we. So, just so you know, people, I'm also talking for you again. I appreciate that. Eh, I'm a single does. mom who works too hard for love to kill and never stop. Um, yes, no, I'm I'm glad to see that it made its way to you. There's more coming. Yeah. There always is. Um, listen, bit of a caveat right off the top of this episode. Uh, yeah. Dear listeners, I've had a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After we stopped recording the last episode of the show, uh, my HVAC units both stopped working. And that coincided with Los Angeles, California, being under what has been called historically the worst heat wave in all history of the mm. state. So um, it's been a real journey. Uh, there was a couple days couldn't stay here. Long story short, it's still not fixed. One of the units is fixed. One of them isn't. But because of that, half of my house is still very hot, unlivably hot. The other house, the other half of the house is okay. Um, but if you are hearing noise in this episode, fan noise, it's because I, I absolutely have to leave the AC on. And I apologize. I know it might be distracting, but it was this or no episode. So this is what we've gone with. Um, I, I really thought it would be fixed by now. I have had three separate companies out here. It's still not done. Each It's been very difficult to get anyone to come out 
because it's, again, a historic heat wave. Everybody's units are breaking down. I've had electricians. I've had HVAC people. We have a plan now. We've, we've managed to get everything where it needs to be. We're just waiting on a part. We're just mm-hmm. waiting on a part. And I've been told it's going to be at least another two, if not five days. And that means it's another two, if not five days of me sleeping on my couch. And I, I know what you're thinking. You love that couch, Lauren. And I do. But not for full nights of sleep. Because what I've learned is I'm not 21 and my spine <laughs> is older. Um, yeah. So anyway, listen. Everything's good. We're all safe and sound, but I do apologize in advance about uh, the sound. Um, I hope it doesn't take you out of it. Uh, hopefully you don't notice. Maybe it just turns into white noise for you. But that was the trade-off. It was this or no episode, so we were like, we, we push forward. We do our best. We do the best we can. I just can't turn it off and risk my own health uh, or ability to, to function in sleep. Because I've had a cumulative, probably in the past five days, I've probably had total a total of like maybe 12 hours of sleep. So I can't, I yeah. can't, I can't let the house heat up. <laughs> no. Look, and I know this is a, a, a bitch thing to say. Uh, I don't hear anything on this end. Listen, I, I hope that's what it is. I hope that at the end of the day, it's, it's, I'm overreacting and that all's good. But, uh, you know, I just, much like I am a perfectionist about the merch, I'm a perfectionist about it all. You know what I'm saying? Of course. That's just There's it. never a time that the perfectionist hat comes off. That's it. It's like the perfectionist scalp. What am I doing? <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yep. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I am a perfectionist <laughs> about this scalp. I'm glad that it's healthy. Um, <laughs> but listen, that's the first yeah. bit of business. The next yeah. bit of business is we've got lot we've got updates. We got lots of things to talk about before we even get into this episode. So we yes. gotta, we got to we got to start with the question that's been on socials since last episode dropped, um, yep. which is of course a follow up about my package. Now, for those who didn't listen to the Brian Schaefer episode of the show, yep. what are you doing? Go back and listen to it. Um, yep. But if you're here now, I'll give you the the uh, quick quick synopsis. I had an older gentleman show up at my home with a package of mine that had shown up at his home. He didn't read the label. He had been waiting for something. He just cut it open and then realized that it was not what he was waiting for. Then read the label, brought it to me. Of course, he was very apologetic that he that he had opened it. But he's like, oh, you know, I was waiting for something from Amazon. This is from Amazon. It was not. Um, but what was in my package? Sharky. <laughs> Aunt, I am a woman on the edge. I'm underslept. (laughs) That's a mother right there. Anyway, what was in my package was the True True Botanicals products, which again, we're not getting any money for this. It's it's only funny. I I have to bring up the name because the reason I've purchased these products is because Olivia Wilde does the commercials and I I was brought in because her skin is flawless and she dates Harry Styles. And I thought, well, listen, if it could get me one step closer to dating Harry Styles. Not that I wish them ill, I don't, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, or a Harry Styles type. Then, again, sure. you know, I'm willing to invest in these skincare items. So I became very concerned after uh, talking about this on last week's episode that, you know, there was no shrink wrap. They're, these these items were not sealed. They're in little right. boxes, but there's not there's no, like, you know, seal to break. And I was like, am I a fool for just using these? Should I trust this man? Is it possible, you know, he stuck his dick in these items, for example? <laughs> Christy right. then said very, very astutely, do you have access to a blacklight? To which I said, I do. Um, so we also decided, because I said to him, like, where do you live? And he's like, oh, on the next street over, which of course I will not name. Uh, and he said, with the same number. 
So he had also given me his first name. So we also became obsessed with, we have to confirm that someone yes. with that name lives at that address. Yes. That ex address exists because then we feel like this man's got some more credibility before I start slathering this potential dick paste on my face. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> dick paste. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Update. Yeah. So I went through all the items with the black light. Now, here's the thing about the black light. I find that, and Christy and I have talked about this, I find that it picks up on some things that are not human. DNA also like or or animal yes. sometimes where it'll be like a flex of dust it'll pick up on now I know one could mm -hmm. argue that it's like well that could be because dust is human skin etc but so it was kind of hard to tell for the most part it wasn't really not much was glowing but there was some little areas it was very hard to tell it, to me it was if I was going to come at this from a legal standpoint inconclusive <laughs> I felt that my black light uh, investigation Inconclusive. Non-determinate. Um, of course. So then when we logged off last week, the two of us hit the internet. And long story short, mm. we found so much information about the people that live at that address that we're not going to share it because it's not yeah. right. It's, it's not right. It's too much. Because it's, yeah. it's too much. Um, it would violate these people's privacy <laughs> to a level that is not what we're about. But what I will share, what I will share is... We have absolutely confirmed that this person is real. We have yes. confirmed that his story is real. And we have learned so much family drama <laughs> about yeah. the people who live in that house, the family members, all of the above. It really did. It's a shame that we can't share all that we found because it's such yeah. a testament to how good we are at this, especially Christy. <laughs> I mean, I had a couple moments, but she really... She really had moments of like predicting what it was going to be, and then she was right. <laughs> Nuanced, oh, I nailed it. Details, yeah. nailing them. Yeah. Um, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable what we managed to find. And yeah, I will say this, dear listeners, let this just be a reminder. Anything you put on the internet, yeah, and I'm hearing my own words, but just know anything you put on the internet, mm -hmm. even if it's on a private Facebook or private whatever, it's out there. Yeah. And we've probably read it. <laughs> I'm kidding. But if we need yeah. to, we can find it, is my point. Yeah. Look, uh, I know we're not going to get into it. I'm just going to say whether I should or not. We, we know about the family drama, and we've chosen a side. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely have. <laughs> I yeah. mean, again, like the, the, the layers that we were able to find. And I want to yeah. remind you, in what? Less than an hour. Oh, it was fast. It yeah. was fast. Once we had the address, you were like, oh, I wish we could look up, like, just based on an address. I'm like, oh, yeah, go to this page and then just search under reverse search with the address. Yep. And Did then that. all of a it sudden was like, it was like, oh. That name's not at that address. Well, who, whose name is at that address? Well, let's find out about those people. Then it was like, but what about this? Well, what about, oh, we found the name. I mean, it was, again, yeah. it was like, we've got our scumbag. Like, it was really, yeah. it was nice. We we came alive oh, we in, did. That, in that moment. Yeah. That was some of the most fun yep. I think we've had. It was that funny thing of like, oh, this is the person who currently lives in the house. They're over a certain age. Yep. Oh, they've got Facebook. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> We're like, next thing you know. And look, we we didn't interact with them. We got no. what we needed. Yeah. And we're out. And uh, 
And listen, no one gets hurt. We're not going to use no. this information, obviously, no. for anything untoward. Again, we're not going to give any of these details because, again, it would be wrong, <laughs> obviously. But yeah, just when I say, like, it was such a testament to me of, of how good our instincts are, but also how good we've gotten at this. It was uh, yeah, it was amazing. So anyway, long story short, I am confidently using the products. I feel fine. They feel fine. I've had no adverse reactions. And we also want to wish that family well. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. Just know we're always going to be thinking about you. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I think yeah. the rest of them will come around eventually, you know? I need to believe that's true. Yeah. Do I want to be there when it happens? Of course, because yes. now I'm invested. It'll never happen. But... I also like there's there part spirit. there's part of me that wants to show up with like a basket of mini muffins or something, but then I'm like, no, don't insert yourself because then I'm gonna slip. Then I'll all of a sudden like name one of the names or something of a family member, and they'll be like, "How do you?" And then I'll have to pretend I'm a psychic. Then they're gonna test me. Then I'm gonna have to like go through some psychic trials. Hope for the best, you know. And what I love is at one point I'm going to be like, I wonder how they're doing. And I'll just scroll through Facebook and be like, why is she at their, wait, is she at their barbecue? What's happening? She's holding a drink. So she's there for the day. What's <laughs> happening? It's, yeah. What yeah. I wouldn't give to be yeah. like, what are they? Oh, I like that. I think one of my other favorite games is yeah. Christy going, was this the man? <laughs> Just hold up a, on her phone a picture of another man. It was like Terminator. Have you seen this boy? It was like that. It was fun. And then I was like, yeah. oh, I don't know. There was some that were definitive no's. Yes. And then there was one that I was like, maybe. And then you found another photo of him. And I was like, that's the guy. That's our scumbag. <laughs> He's not a scumbag. He's not a scumbag. No. No. We're just using Because we found the one photo, but it was an older photo. That's right. And he has trimmed down since then. So it was tough to say. It was like a tough call. And we were like, is that the same man? So just one quick app. Boop, 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 boop. Here's a side by side. How about now? Yeah. (laughs) No wonder he's trimmed down the streets. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing. Oh, God. We're concerned. We're concerned. We we had a real time. We did. This is what we had. We did. It was kind of like a slumber party. Yeah. In the best way. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, no one's getting their bra put in the freezer this time. We never did that to anybody. Like, I don't know why. Did I anyone really ever do, do sleepovers? Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've done my share, but I don't remember putting anybody's bra in the freezer. And then, by the way, during this heat wave, yeah. that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, look, you'll love this. Too much information, but this is how I live my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you can put my bra in the freezer if you want. I like to not wear it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, often will put one on just to record this, which I know what you're thinking. Why do you need a bra for that? Because I'm like, well, I don't know. They see me from like the shoulders up. They might know. But then I think it was last week. I was like, I think I'm going to test it. You did. I'm going to try and record without one because it's just a comfort thing. I need to find one more comfortable or I just need to accept that I just don't want one anymore. I'm over it. Yeah. I've been wearing one for over 30 years now. I'm done. You've put in your time. I have put in my time. You've done the crime. You've put in your time. Now it's time for you to be free. Yeah. Oh, if you think anything's going under that muumuu, 
your own. Oh, yeah. Maybe just like a small spandex shorts to help my thighs. <laughs> if we're going to be walking too much. If we're not, we're not yeah. going to be walking too much. No. Well, I don't know. I don't know how big that farmer's market is. Yeah, great point. Well, we are we also going to look into electric sc- <laughs> scooters at some point? Can we get vanity plates on those? Oh, yeah. Blanche and the Judge. <laughs> I want us to live in some beautiful, beautiful, small coastal town. Yeah. Um, coastal. To the Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> sometimes I'd like to see the ocean. Of course. Of course. Uh, and I would love it. For just people to be like, oh, here comes Blanche and the judge. Like, I just want it to be like, we are known. We're those oh, yeah. crazy old ladies. Yep. They know who we are. Newbies will come in and be like, oh, are they like a couple? And they'll be like, Blanche and the judge? No. Barking up the wrong tree. Yep. Or they'll just go, a couple of chuckleheads. And then yeah. that'll. That's cute. They'll laugh hysterically. And the new people will be like, I don't know what you're talking about so is that a like is that a no or yeah and then we'll be like i don't know we've been engaged for 40 years yep yep we've, uh, told, we've told that story on the show before yeah we I have don't remember which episode uh could have christmas it might have been a hoot nanny because mm-hmm. it was a it's a christmas story yep but I don't remember if that's when it was, because as you know, I don't tend to recall the Hootenannies. No. No, it's the one time she gets drunker than me, folks. They're a, yeah. they're a romp. If you haven't listened to them, if you've skipped the Hootenannies, you're doing yourself a disservice. That's all I'm going to say. Um, I took my pants off in one. She did. The first one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, a couple other things we want to touch on real quick before we get into the case. Obviously, yeah. we would be remiss if we didn't mention this. Uh, the Taylor Hawkins tribute has come out over the past week. And as we've yeah. talked about many times on the show, Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters, Taylor Hawkins have become an integral part of this podcast. If you've been listening from the beginning, you'll know this. Um, we saw them last December as a part of uh, Christie's birthday celebration. Uh, I have not watched all of the tribute. I have watched some no. clips. Um, yes. Very overwhelming. Very yeah. overwhelming for me, anyway. Yeah. I uh, I won't lie. I probably won't ever get around to watching the entire thing. Who knows? Yeah. I might. Um, it, it, it was uh, out on a day where I was out of town at a sporting event, so I couldn't see it in the moment, and I've had to see bits of it since then. Plus, I've been working, so I haven't had the chance. But... My main interest, I needed to see how Dave Grohl was doing. Of course. I needed that moment. I needed to see him come out. He can he can make a speech. I'll tell yeah. you that. He's a beautiful wordsmith. Wordsmith. Oh my god. I wasn't even I, gonna call you on it. You called yourself out. I wasn't gonna I, I was gonna let you have that one. I did. Um it was look. Dave Grohl, I am so proud of you for what you did and for carrying on and what a beautiful, beautiful tribute to your friend and what a beautiful testament to who Taylor was as a person and as a musician to get that kind of response and the fact that that's only half of it because there's another one in like LA, I think. Yep. 
that yep. sound right? Um, oh my God. But like, oh, them, them doing times like these, that was tough. A lot of it was tough. Like I, the second I saw Dave Grohl, I'm like, nope, not doing well. I'm not doing great. Um, of course, I think we've all seen uh, Taylor's son, Shane, playing drums on My Hero. Yep. Uh, Dave's look of pride oh. as he's watching him makes me sob. Uh, Shane's look where you can see like pain mm-hmm. as he's pushed, but he's pushing through. Just so beautiful. Violet Grohl. Uh, singing was beautiful. I mean, there was just so many things. I'm just, again, what a testament to a beautiful human. And, oh, Dave Grohl. Yeah. I just, the second he came out, I was like, I just want to hold him. Yeah. I just want to hold him. Times Like These is the song song that I cry to in general. It's the song that I scream cried to when we saw them live. They opened the show with that, and I was just loudly sobbing. Uh, And so, yeah, watching that clip, that was difficult for me. Um, Again, just just heaving crying watching that. Uh, I haven't been able to listen to any Foo Fighters music since Taylor passed. It's just been – it just hasn't felt right. I've tried, and then I'm like, it's too soon. It's too too raw. It's too painful – um, but likewise, I was like, I feel like I need to check in at least yeah. with this, this, this thing and, and yeah, see what's going on with Dave. How does, how's he doing? I mean, again, obviously we assume not great in many ways. Um, but yes, I was like, I was looking at him and I was like, oh, his hair, it just looks like he's, he's, he's taking care of himself. I, I just felt like as he washed that hair, uh, <laughs> I, I say that with no judgment, I was more just like, I just know for me, if I'm going through it, I let all that shit go. Yeah, um, but you know so that what was, that means. What? Dave and I could, could recreate Untamed Heart. <laughs> <laughs> Where Marissa Tomei washes Christian Slater's hair and cuts it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. I love Untamed Heart, by the way. One oh of my, my favorite God. movies. Obsessed with it. Baboon Records and a ma- or un- Magic Records and a Baboon Heart. You almost got me believing in it. You are the cutest. Listen, that's one. That's another one I could almost do by heart, by untamed heart. Um, listen, you know what? <laughs> I would love to see that for you. That's a callback yeah. to our characters, Bert and Larry. Uh, yeah. Bert and Larry. Bert and Larry Bert Bird. And um, Bert and Larry as ghosts will never stop making me laugh. It's, again, your best idea, my finest work. Um but yes, uh, all the love out there to all the Foo Fighters fans and, and again, to, to the, the Hawkins family, to, to Dave Grohl and, and the rest of the Foo Fighters family. Um, yeah, it must have been it was if it was that painful to watch as outsiders, it must oh. have been absolutely um, amazing, but impossible to do uh, and, and perform. So we send all the love out there to everybody regarding that. Um a couple other quick things. I feel like we're doing like a news show. It feels like this is like, the, like all the pop culture hits off the top of the show. I love it. Look, um, you and I doing a show that's all pop culture. Yep. I, I mean, what a dream. But also, it's not going to mean no research because somehow we'll find a way. We'll be like, oh, well, we should do background on that. I know. It's bigger than us. It always is. Can't stop it. It would be impossible for us not to mention Don't Worry Darling. Oh, God. And what's happening there. Um, 
for those who don't know, Olivia Wilde directed a movie called Don't Worry, Darling, starring, starring Florence Pugh and Harry Styles. And their yeah. press tour that they're currently doing, to quote Refinery29, is mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, there's been all of this drama in the press. And, and of course, it was that's the movie where Olivia and, and Harry Styles kind of fell in love, seemingly, or got together. There is a lot of rumors that Florence Pugh is not having a great time during the filming of that movie. Um, she is refusing to do press. Uh, of course, Olivia Wilde came forward saying that she had fired Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf came forward with the receipts that that was not the case, that he had quit. Mm. Um, of course, in Venice recently, uh, it looked as though on a video that Harry Styles had spat on Chris Pine. Both yeah. parties have said that that was absolutely untrue. It is my favorite show. Oh, I know. Someone, I- someone said... Uh, that if they just filmed all of this, it would be better than what that movie probably is. <laughs> well, this is some of the things, some of the reviews that are coming out about that movie. Now, listen, I also, I always give reviews a grain of salt. Of course. Because I've, I've been on the, you know, the receiving end of some, un, in my opinion, unfair reviews. Um, sure. I think that, you know, bless, but reviewers, critics, they need to justify having a job. And it's a lot easier to justify having a job if you're negative and if you're getting clicks from salacious headlines than it is from being positive. So anyway, but some of what I've been reading is actually interesting because it's kind of in the middle. So people are saying that it's like Florence Pugh's performance is great. Harry Styles proves that he could be a star, a movie star if he wants to be. But the movie's kind of just fine. (laughs) And it's like, it's like, yeah, no, the movie's, the movie's okay. Like it's, it's good. It's good. Not an Oscar contender. Like these are what the reviews in which I find so fascinating. Um, and so to that point, yeah, it's it's interesting to me that that that's kind of been the narrative. Do I think it's 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 unfair because again, I want to support female directors? Yes. Do I think it would be getting that kind of review if it was a male director? Mm, I don't know. I I don't know. But I also don't think that all of this drama necessarily would be happening. It feels like it's getting under this microscope um for that reason. That being said, uh, you know what? I'll I'll admit when I'm in in the wrong I'm lapping it up like a kitten with a saucer of damn milk. (laughs) It is what it is. Yeah. But I think it's also because Florence Pugh is like, like ethereal and gorgeous and like powerful and like living her best life. Like, I don't feel like, I just don't know if there's a victim in this. So I think that's why I feel okay and delighting in it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, Olivia Wilde, I want your film to do well. But guess what? It's going to. Because there's so much that's happening. There's no way that that movie's not going to make money, right? Oh, so I'm like, yeah. I don't, and, and she'll be able to make another one because of that. So I don't know that she is a full victim in this. I don't like the fact that, again, she's a female director and there's so few female directors and, and whatever. But I'm also like, I just don't think it's going to impact the success of the film. I think it's going to sure. help the success of the film. So that's why I ultimately don't feel bad sure. as I sit and eat my popcorn in the front row at the fucking circus, you know? Oh, it's... Bananas. It's cuckoo bananas. Like it, one or two of these things to happen for a movie is like, woof, that's a lot. But like so many things. Uh, Chris Pine just mentally checking out of every, every I- interview or press conference or every anything that he has to do any speaking. He's yeah. not there. He's no, there physically. Then, yeah. But mentally, well, he's, he's with Florence Pugh somewhere. <laughs> I think he's 
in love with her. He also oh. did this full photo shoot with her on the red carpet in Venice with a with a disposable camera. And like the joy he's taking is she's like spinning in this like impossibly gorgeous gown. Oh, um, yeah. I was just like, I think he loves her a little bit, which got sure. so do I. No judgment. Um, but I did. Did you read this? He's uh, now dropped out of doing press in New York. I guess they were the next stop was New York, and he is he has said that he will not be doing it. Interesting. Which again, I get it. I mean, there's so much footage. The man has become an immediate meme. With, of course. He, I think he was fully disassociating. Like psychologists had on, like it sure. felt like he was he was not. Like, not a joke, not in that room. It feels like he was mentally not in that room. Like, he was, it looked like he was out of his body. Um, oh, God, Which, yes. again, no judgment. It it felt like it was like, are you okay? Uh, but that interview that's now, the clip of that's gone viral, which is Harry Styles saying, like, I think my favorite thing about the movie is that it feels like, like a movie. I know. <laughs> like, Chris Pine, jump in. Help this guy out. I know. Help, help sweet Harry out here. But and it's another one of those moments where it feels like Chris Pine is not there. Oh. He feels like he's, why, if would he look be? at the clip, he's just, yeah. Who knows how long he spent doing that movie. Yeah. Only for it to be all of the press is, they're talking about Shia. They're talking yep. about Harry. They're talking yep. about Olivia. They're talking about Florence. No one's talking about Pine. Yeah. Well, and, and except so, for the it, person who tweeted, <laughs> did you know that Chris Pine is short for Christmas pinecone? <laughs> <laughs> Which, God, I laugh with just such God, delight. God, I want that to be true. That would be my husband. <laughs> if there was a man named Christmas pinecone, I'd be like, get in the house. Well, Put like Chrissy, Chrissy Snow, right? It's possible. Yeah. Mm. Um. But I guess the only time that he did make the news again was when Harry Styles allegedly spat, spat on him. So I guess oh my god, that. not so ideal. I'd like to be talking. The conversation I'd like to be having about Chris Pine is: Can yeah. we talk about that haircut? And what about those very tanned ankles? Because if you take a, take a real look, he's been wearing a lot of loafers with short pants, which is a vibe. I love it; looks great. But his ankles are tanned; like they are brown. <laughs> no, that's doing a disservice. Orange. They're 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 a deep burnt orange <laughs> and he's a very white man as far as i know I, I did not in the history of things i thought you might say i did not see that coming oh i'm gonna need to see a photo of that um yep yeah yeah i'm not digging the hair i mean to each their own uh i just i feel like he hit a point and then and then suddenly he's like Momo's electric <laughs> scooter, farmer's market, coastal town. Like, he's mentally just yeah. like, why am I doing this? Chris Pine is the physical, um, it, he's what it looks, <laughs> no, that's not even the right way of saying it. Chris Pine is somehow the same energy of me not wanting to wear a bra. It's just he's finally gotten there. I think he might be our people, is the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> those are very tanned ankles. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. 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 Those are those are those are bronze. They're very bronze. And as someone who's new yeah. to self-tanner, uh, it's difficult around the ankles and the knees. You got to be careful that it doesn't get patchy. But again, if you if you compare the ankles to the wrists is what I'm saying. Ah, uh, 
Yes. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. But again, maybe he just wanted to make it look like he had socks on. I don't know. Point is, Chris Pine, we're fans. We love you. Good on you, bud. Good on you. And I have confirmed he is full white. Just because I panicked there for a second, I was like, did I, have I done something terrible? No. <gasps> Where do the um, pine cones come from? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, exactly. Um, it. All right. Last thing before we get into the case, because this is, again, yeah. this has been a long pop culture list. Now, this isn't necessarily yeah. pop culture. This is sure. true crime. Something yeah. big happened uh, very close to you over this past week. I got an alert yeah. on my phone in Los Angeles, California, <laughs> that this was happening where Christy is. And then I was, I was like, what the heck is this? And then, of yeah. course, I texted her our common phrase, which is, have you seen this? Um, yeah, which but was I know followed that, up with, is this near you? <laughs> yeah, because then they, yeah. this is the thing. It was like, I got this CNN report and it said Saskatchewan. And then it literally showed a map of Canada and uh, and they, they'd highlighted Saskatchewan. And then they put like a little dot and it was like, this is happening here. And I was like, name a city, guys. Name a city. I beg. I beg you. Mm-hmm. Some of us know the area if you name a city. Yeah. Yeah, I think for especially for uh, something like CNN and like in America, even if it happened in our provincial capital, uh, saying the name isn't going to mean anything to so many people. But this, it happened somewhere fairly small. Right. That if I had just heard the name, I wouldn't have even known oh. it was in my province. Of I'm course. not uh, as familiar Got it. with my province as I should be. I've... I have not traveled throughout the province. Uh, But yes, now there was, I mean, I think it goes without saying, we would have said it right off the top. I'm perfectly fine. It it did not go, I don't believe it went anywhere near me. I will get into it briefly, but I don't think it went anywhere near me. But I just knew that the dear listeners were going to be like, they hear the word Saskatchewan, they're like, I think that's where Christy is correct. Yep. Um, and that it would be like, well, it, how did she not mention it? Right. So I uh, I came up with just a brief thing for those who are just not sure what this was. And there's not a lot about it because it's so, so new. Yes. But, but, so I do live in the province of Saskatchewan, by the way. And yes, yes if you look at a very quick map, I'm the rectangle. So, 31-year-old Damien Sanderson and his brother, 32-year-old Miles Sanderson, went on a stabbing rampage in Saskatchewan on September 4th, 2022. Starting at 5.40 a.m., RCMP, that's Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, received multiple calls from the James Smith Cree Nation about stabbings at multiple locations. At 7.12 a.m., RCMP issued a dangerous persons alert to residents of the James Smith uh, and nearby communities. An hour later, the alert was sent to the rest of the province, which included then the names and photos of the suspects. At 9.45 a.m., RCMP issued another dangerous persons alert after they learned uh, of stabbing victims in the village of Weldon, which is about 29 kilometers or 18 miles southwest of James Smith Cree Nation. At 11.25, uh, the alert was extended to neighboring provinces, Alberta and Manitoba. I assume then they went south to uh, alert you as well. Right. So the, the a witness 
claimed to see the vehicle that the brothers were in around noon in the provincial capital, that is Regina. Uh, However, I just don't know if that sighting was accurate Mm. because everywhere else that they went uh, was all more northern Saskatchewan as opposed to southern. It's not impossible. uh, They very well could have gone there. But they were on the run for multiple days, and they all seemed to stay in, like, a small spot. So I just don't think they went anywhere near Regina. Regina is close to me. It's maybe 45 minutes away. But even then, I'm not convinced they were there. But what do I know? Uh, At 3.45 p.m., police announced that 10 people had been killed and another 15 had been injured across 13 locations. Wow. Damien was found dead the following day in a field near a house on the James Smith Cree Nation. His injuries did not appear to be self-inflicted, and police were trying to determine if Miles might have been responsible. Two days later, around 2 p.m. on Wednesday, Miles broke into a rural property about 30 kilometers northeast of Waka, uh, which is like 96 kilometers southeast of James Smith. The lone occupant of the house said she saw Miles approach the front door, which was locked. She ran to her ensuite bathroom, locking her bedroom door and the bathroom door behind her. Miles broke down all three doors, but told the woman he wasn't going to hurt her, even though he was armed with a knife. He took the woman's keys, her cell phone, cigarettes, water, and a Pepsi before leaving in the woman's truck. The woman was uninjured. That's interesting. Yeah. Miles was arrested near uh, Rossthorne, Saskatchewan, around 3.30 p.m., and soon after, he went into medical distress and was taken to a hospital in Saskatoon, where he was pronounced dead. According to RCMP Assistant Commissioner Rhonda Blackmore, witness accounts indicate that Miles was the person responsible for the attacks. Apparently, Miles had been listed as unlawfully at large since May when he stopped meeting with his assigned caseworker. Interesting. Prior to that, he had been serving a five-year sentence for assault, robbery, mischief, and uttering threats. In February 2022, Miles received a statutory release, which happens when an inmate has served two-thirds of their sentence. The parole board decided that Miles did not, quote, present an undue risk to society. And the psychologist who assessed Miles said he only had a, quote, moderate risk of violence. Oh, boy. In the end, the rampage left 18 people injured and 10 people dead. The fatal victims ranged in age from 23 to 78. They include Wesley Pedersen. Earl Burns Sr., Lydia Gloria Burns, Christian Head, Lana Head, Robert Sanderson, Bonnie Goodvoice Burns, Carol Burns, Gregory Burns, and Thomas Burns. All but one of the victims belonged to James Smith Cree Nation. The other victim was from the village of Weldon. Some of the victims seemed targeted. Others seemed random. But now that both suspects are dead... We're just never going to know what their true motive was unless somehow they have left a note somewhere, which yeah. I doubt that they have, but it was it was news to me looking this up that 
everyone said it was Miles specifically causing these attacks. And then it just seemed that his brother was just there. Interesting. So we don't know that Damien was even that involved. Right. And the fact that he died so early on and they wonder if potentially Miles killed him. Is it possible that Damien was like, hey, what are you doing? This is crazy. We have to stop. And he killed his brother. Well, it's interesting that Damien's body was also found in the Cree Nation area. Yeah. Did they go on the run together or did he kill him and then go on the run by himself, thus negating this sighting in Regina? Oh, I think it's more than possible. Right. I also think he found a house and he hid out in it is what I think. I don't think he was constantly on the run. I don't think he went outside of the province. I think he stayed within that small area. I really do. Yeah, I yeah, because again, to me, it feels odd for them to be in that area and then drive all around, drive all the way to Regina, drive all the way back north. Yeah. And then come back to where they started and then he kills him. That feels unlikely. Oh, yeah. Especially him being found there. Yeah, I'm convinced they had those attacks. And then I don't know how long he was even there until they found him. Yeah. So who knows? Because they haven't said yet if maybe he had been dead long, like for a day or something. I don't know. But I think they were hiding out there. And maybe the brother was like, I've got to, we got to tell the cops we've got to give ourselves up. Right. And he didn't like it and then was like, here we go, and now I'm going to leave. Right. Well, listen, thank you for that. Thank you for giving us that uh, insight and backstory. Um, My only other question is, do we know exactly how he died? I thought, thought, was it cardiac arrest? I I thought that I read, it was just like a medical. Yeah. It just said he was in medical distress. He he went into distress at some point while in police custody. Well, and then, of course, I... I mean, I worry when I hear that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Saskatchewan doesn't have a great history between the police and the indigenous people. Yeah, that's the first thing that came to mind, especially if oh. you've gone on a very, it's, it should also be noted, like, a spree killing like that is exceptionally yeah. rare in, I would, I think that's fair yes. to say, isn't it? In, in oh, Canada, yeah, certainly, yeah. but certainly in Saskatchewan. Like, that's a. Oh, us, make us. Making American newscasters say Saskatchewan. Yeah, I mean, it's rare. I don't remember the last time. Um, Yeah. So that makes me worried. Going into, quote, medical distress when he's in the custody of police makes me concerned about that. But then putting that aside for a second, um, because, again, we cover all the bases. uh, Then I just wonder about substances. I'm like, was was there a was there a substance involved? That yeah. perhaps caused a heart, a cardiac issue. That's the only other thing I can think. It's because he was so young. Yeah. I mean, it is possible. I'm there hasn't because it's so, so new. Yeah. There hasn't been a ton about it. I was lucky to find what I did. Um, but also this is why we tend to not do cases that are fresh. Yeah. Because there like, by yeah. the time this airs, there may be new information. We don't know. But yeah. we will uh obviously uh keep you all posted. Uh, yeah. As it as the story continues, if there is more to know, then we'll we'll get it out there. Yeah. Uh, but along those lines, here we go. We're going to finally get into the case. That's the longest opening we've ever done. But we hit a lot of things. There was a lot we to talk about. We had so many things. Yes. Pop culture, check. Personal lives, check. check. True crime, check. Check. Triple check. Like, 
Come on. Knocked it out so, of the park. Thank you very much. Uh, this episode of the show, we're talking about an OG Unsolved Mysteries episode. This is, of course, yeah. the case of Will Hendrick. I'll give you a little bit of background now. In January 1999, university student Will Hendrick attended a friend's party in a small town in Idaho. The next morning, Will was nowhere to be found. During a search two days later, Will's car was found parked downtown with no signs of foul play. Some believed that Will had simply walked away from his life until his partial remains were discovered more than three years later. So what happened to Will Hendrick? Did he have an altercation with someone at the party? Did he run into the wrong person after he left? Or was the culprit Will's very own neighbor? Christy Oxborough investigates. It's so weird to be starting this now because after reading something I've already, like, prepared it feels like i don't normally have things prepared prior right so it feels weird to read that and not finish it we talk about it and then we go to a break right <laughs> you know what i mean yes so it is what it is we're just trying to squeeze everything in folks uh so as always disclaimer uh this episode will contain mentions of rape suicide and child sexual abuse i will make it as quick as possible uh so trigger warning for those who need it i also don't get graphic with details so of course uh so we're going to do this episode a little differently uh the main case for this episode of course is will hendrick but we're not going to get into that right away uh because while i was researching that particular case i came across so many so many cases from that same town that I just had to mention them here. And it's not a large town, so I was very surprised to see them. Um, but I'm going to mention a few of them here, and then I'm going to mention some others in an episode over on patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails. Because we do, we do that. So if you're interested, it's over there. Yes. Uh, but the common denominator in all of these cases is that they took place in Moscow, Idaho, which is near the border of the state of Washington. Moscow is home to the University of Idaho, and according to a 2020 census, Moscow had a population of just over 24,000. Moscow is situated in, oh, I should have looked up how to say this, Lata County, uh, and has over 60% of the county's population. According to NeighborhoodScout.com, Moscow has a crime index of 38 out of 100, which means it is safer than 38% of the cities in the United States. Uh, the site also claims that the odds of being a victim of a violent crime in Moscow is like 1 in 2,500, whereas that number is closer to 1 in 415 for the entire state of Idaho. So, David Duke a former police chief of Moscow, stated that he believes Moscow is a safe community. He said, quote, We've had some of the more complicated cases. We've had some of the more unusual cases in a lot of ways. I have to think that more likely than not, it's just a terrible coincidence. So we're going to get into a few of these cases. Starting with a cold case from the 60s. Oh. Janice Lynn Foyles was born September 18th, 1951, to Marvin and Karma Foyles in Ker 
Dallaine, Idaho. The family also included five other children, Randall, Leslie, Stanley, Stephen, and Anne. After Janice's second year of high school, the family moved to Moscow, where Janice was part of the French Club and the Pep Club at Moscow High School. She was also active in American Field Service, which was the school's foreign exchange program. Janice graduated in June 1969, and that fall she became a freshman at the University of Idaho. On December 28, 1969, Janice was working the closing shift at the Tip Top Cafe, a restaurant that was both sit-down and, like, drive-in kind of style. Like, right. I'm talking like the, was it, was that, like, car hop type? Yeah. Whatever that. Um, at the time, it was located on the corner of 3rd Street and Jefferson. When Janice failed to return home after her shift, her father Marvin and her brother Randall went to the cafe around 3.30 a.m. to check on her. They found Janice lying behind the counter of the cafe, bludgeoned to death. Janice was just 18 years old. She was described as a quiet girl who was as beautiful as she was kind. Her father said that prior to her death, Janice was just beginning to come out of her shell. Oh. Janice's time of death was estimated to be about six hours before she was found, which would mean around 9.30 p.m. Around 8.40 p.m., a Moscow police officer noticed uh, the lights were still on at the cafe when he was making his routine rounds. He later said he believed Janice was in the process of closing because it looked like she was counting the till out. Police believe the murder weapon was a claw hammer, and coincidentally, the cafe had a claw hammer, which was missing one claw, that was kept behind the counter for small repairs. The hammer went missing at the time of Janice's death and has not been seen since, so it's probably safe to assume that the murder weapon was from the cafe. Right. Investigators said that based on the crime scene photos, quote, it would appear that obviously robbery or some kind of sexual assault was not the motive, so that would more than likely lead you to believe it was a crime of passion. Obviously, with multiple blows, there's some rage involved. As for a crime of passion, some ex-boyfriends of Janice's were interviewed, but they were cleared. But I don't know why, why they were so quick to dismiss robbery as a motive. When the body was found, Janice was clutching the receipts from the day, which totaled only $17. It was a slow night, that's not a surprise. It was the time frame between Christmas and New Year's. Most of the university students had headed home for holiday break. At the time, the population of Moscow was like 11,000 people. Who's to say that someone didn't enter the cafe with the intention of robbing it, only to find out that there was only $17? I could see that enraging someone who might have been desperate enough to rob the cafe in the first place. And maybe they saw the small amount, they got angry, they saw the hammer, they grabbed it, and they killed Janice. I think that's, I don't dare say reasonable, but I could see, Yeah. That I, I don't feel like Possible. that's a, I don't feel like that's a leap. Right. Uh, Moscow Police Sergeant David Williams said, quote, we believe this is an isolated incident. It does not seem to be the work of a psychopath. A month later, another officer said they had turned up several productive leads and they were narrowing the field down. As of now, 
Nearly 53 years later, investigators have no suspects, and the case is inactive. Recently, investigators have said, quote, obviously, anytime we have a homicide case that's unsolved, the case remains open. It's never officially closed, but it's not active until we have some leads to follow up on. For anyone interested, the Tip Top Cafe went out of business decades ago. That building is now home to a lock shop and a hair salon. Hmm. But I have read that I think it was in the hair salon Anytime a new police officer joins their force, they hear about this case and they go to the hair salon so they can like be in the place where it happened to like try and visualize things, even though it's completely different. Because, of course, they come in, they're new to the force, they're ready to go. They really want to get this solved. They want to solve like the oldest case they got. Mm-hmm. And then and then reality hits them. Yeah, and they don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not judging them for not solving it i'm just saying well i, I mean also i mean very quickly what about so it was a cop that saw her at 840 allegedly counting her till what else did that cop do and she when was she killed was killed around 9 30 when she uh was counting her till was he witnessing it from inside yeah oh yeah same i mean that's the first thing that same. came to my mind yeah And routine, it's like, would he normally be in that spot at that time? Did he see her at that spot and was like, well, she's all alone. I'll just go chat her up. Was he routinely chatting her up? Was he trying to be untoward? Did she say no? Did he get angry, thus making it a crime of passion? Again, this is why we do this. Yep. So, my my second pre-case case... I don't know if I like... Oh, no, I do like that wording. I like it. Um, It occurred June 29th, 1979. Ken Shaper dropped his wife, Gayla, off at a field near their dairy farm around 7 p.m. Gayla was going to feed her two horses while Ken drove into Moscow to run a few errands and wash the car. Ken told Gayla he'd be back within the hour. He returned 45 minutes later... Gayla was nowhere to be found. At first, Ken thought that Gayla may have been picked up by her parents, who lived about three miles or 4.8 kilometers from the field, so he drove to his in-law's house and found they hadn't spoken with Gayla that evening. The three of them then spent hours looking around the farm, and when there was still no sign of Gayla at midnight, Ken contacted the county sheriff's department. Deputies arrived and searched the area, While they felt it was unlikely that Gayla would have left voluntarily, they found no signs of foul play and concluded that Gayla had likely been abducted by someone traveling down State Highway 8, which was adjacent to the field. The search continued for several days, but no sign of Gayla was ever found. Ken was even considered a suspect early on, but he was cleared. Gayla's husband... Uh, claimed that in the months leading up to his wife's disappearance, the couple had received several disturbing phone calls. A person would call their house in the middle of the night and then hang up when one of them answered. On April 13th, just two months before Gayla's disappearance, they received a letter that read, You sold out to Satan. The letters were cut out of magazines and newspapers. The person, or persons, 
behind the phone calls and the letter has never been identified, and police never determined if any of it was related to Gala's disappearance. Then two months after Gala went missing, her mother, Connie Nelson, received two phone calls from a female who Connie believed was Gala. The woman asked for help, but then hung up before Connie could respond. Police installed a tape recorder on Connie's phone, but no further calls were ever made. So I just assume it was probably some sort of prank. Yeah. In March 1980, police consulted a psychic who had worked with other law enforcement before, and she gave police several leads to follow up on. Unfortunately, the leads didn't go anywhere. Uh, More than 20 different law enforcement agencies participated in the search, and a cash reward was offered. But no sign of Gala was ever found, and the case went cold. Cut to 14 years later. October 26, 1993, 32-year-old William Hagdorn and his live-in girlfriend, Joanne Romero, got into a drunken fight. More than four hours into the verbal and physical altercation, William said he just wanted to go to sleep, but Joanne tried to pull the sheets out from under him. So William reached for his nearby 38 caliber handgun, cocked it, and held it to Joanne's side. In court, William said, quote, I had no intentions of ever shooting Joanne, ever. I put it against her. She said, get that thing away from me, and turned, and it went off. He added, quote, I just wanted her to leave me alone. I was trying to scare her. William said he ran to a neighbor's house to call 911, and when he went back to the house, he kneeled in her blood as he tried to perform CPR. When emergency crews arrived, Joanne had a wound to her right side and was gasping for breath. Joanne was taken to a hospital where she died several hours later. She was 31 years old. William was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, although after a preliminary hearing, that charge was amended to second-degree murder. During the trial, the jury was unable to reach a verdict, so it ended in a mistrial. A second trial was scheduled, and against the advice of his counsel— William requested that he be tried by the court and not a jury. In February 1994, William was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 30 years. As of September 2022, William remains incarcerated at Idaho Correctional Center in Kuna, Idaho. So why am I bringing up this seemingly unconnected case? Well... An informant told police that Joanne was killed for what she knew. What exactly did Joanne know? Well, according to this informant, who was related to Joanne, Joanne once told them that William and his father Larry had raped a girl in the green metal shop on Larry's property several years ago, and the girl was never found. Police believe the girl in question was Gayla Shaper, since Larry lived across a rural rural lane from where Gayla was last seen. Investigators asked William if his father was involved in Gayla's disappearance. William, quote, this is a quote from police, began to cry and said, I don't want to hurt my dad. Wowzer! 
Police obtained a warrant in the summer of 1995 to search the land owned by Larry Hagdorn. Trained cadaver dogs and an underground radar device were used to search. Both indicated that a body had been buried in the metal shop. Larry had just added a cement floor to that shop in 1980. I'll remind you, Gala went missing in 1979. Mm-hmm. Sure, That's not a coincidence. Uh, The cement floor was ripped out, and during the excavation, investigators found clothing, including tennis shoes and a blouse, that were wrapped in a curtain. There were also two small bone fragments. Everything was sent to the FBI crime lab in Quantico, Virginia. Unfortunately, nothing came back as substantial evidence. They couldn't make an arrest. So maybe the fragments were either too small to get DNA from, or maybe they weren't human. They have not said since. But something else to keep in mind about Larry, he owned an excavation business and a backhoe and had been known to do a lot of excavating on his own property so he could bury trash and once he even buried a car. Yep. Wow. A lot of questions about that. Larry did pass a polygraph test, which doesn't take him off the list of potential suspects for me, because he refused to speak with police about Gala, which instantly makes me suspicious. But Larry's attorney said Larry was a victim of police harassment. Regarding Gala's case, Larry was only ever charged with illegally possessing a firearm. Larry passed away in 2005. Hmm. Gala's husband, Ken, has been seen as a suspect because, as Ken puts it, quote, Every spouse is generally, statistically a person of interest after an incident like this. Yeah, Ken. Good on you. A lot of people will give you crap for being like, maybe it was the spouse, but Ken's got it. Ken gets it. Yeah. And I have some questions for Ken myself. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, sure. I love that. I was just... uh, They... Police claim that he has been officially cleared. Mm-hmm. Well, I know. Great. Cleared from them, not cleared, cleared from, from them. I know Thank that's you. completely different. <laughs> uh, he passed a polygraph test when the case was reopened in 1993. I can't. Uh, Ken did eventually remarry in 1987, and the couple had a son the following year. As of September 2022, Gala Shaper still has not been found. At the time of her disappearance, Gala was 27 years old, described as a Caucasian female, 5'8", 130 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes, last seen wearing a blue sweater, Levi jeans, and tennis shoes. I need to believe they tested those tennis shoes that they found. I mean, why aren't they testing it now? Technology is better now. It's so much better. It's so much better. And who owns that land now? My con- my questions for him are... Yes. I understand oh, I he passed wait. a polygraph, but my questions for him are... Well, so did what Larry, is- and I don't trust him. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, well, first of all, redo the polygraph. That was a polygraph in 1993. Again, let's, let's redo these things now that technology has pro- progressed. I know yeah. that Larry can't because he's passed, but... Um, my questions are always about my questions are about timeline because even if he didn't commit the crime, it's like yeah. we need proof of your exact timeline because that changes where exactly she may have been, how much time Larry and potentially William had to find her, do what they're doing, dispose of the body, 
that's not a lot. 45 minutes, it's not impossible, but it's it's also not a lot of time to I'm find someone, sure. a- attack them, murder them, hide the body. Now, I granted, I understand they could have moved the body at some point after the fact, but do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, it's like, oh, I'm convinced they saw her maybe got close enough to be like, hey, you know, come over here or whatever, and took her to that building on his property. Right. And then right. once because they're my there, thing is, no one else was going to check. Right. But my thing is, again, is that it's like the amount of time, they would have had to grab her immediately. Listen, I don't know how long sure. it takes people to commit the crimes that they do, but my perception would be that 45 minutes is tight, door to door. Sure. For them to see her say to each other, are we doing this? Also, father, son, disgusting. Oh, um, yeah. Lure her top to bo- Again, do you see what I'm saying? Like, like to me, if he was in the area, again, another question I have for her husband. Did you get out of the car? Did you walk around? Did you see this metal shop? If it was right near where you had left her, did you approach the metal shop? Yeah. My, my question is, were you later? Did you say you'll be there in less than an hour and were you actually like 90 minutes? Those are the details that I'm not yeah. buying. Because Did that changes things. Did you go to their house because that's, it's a nearby neighbor and be like, hey, have you seen her? Exactly. These are the details that I'm like, were you fudging it a little bit because you were later than you were supposed to be and you feel guilty or whatever. I'm not trying to, yeah. to, to victim shame whatsoever. My point just is, is that it's like, What's the exact details of this story? Because it oh, yeah. changes it changes the ability for other people to have committed the crime. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I want you to play a cop on TV so bad. <laughs> it's a dream. It would be a dream. But what I want is every day you come to set, they're like, here's your pages for the day. And you look at it and it's it's just all like you go off your instinct. Use yeah, your like, instincts is what I want it to say. Everyone else has, has lines. You just go with your instinct. Yep. You learn the case as it yep. goes. Yep. So that you pull out these golden moments like this. That's exactly. what I want. Exactly. That's what I want. And listen, I'm also fine to be wrong. I can be completely wrong. Yes. I have no shame in that. My point just is, again, yeah, man, the, statistically it is the partner. So yeah. you're going to have to go over this case. You're going to have to go over your details again and again and again until you're so angry from telling the details. You, your head wants to explode. Yeah. And I'm going to be here picking up the pieces. Yeah, I really got to make this happen. Yes. Oh, I think we all need that in our yeah. lives. Yep. Uh, okay, I've got one more. Yep. So, Tanya Lynn Hart, who was living in Moscow with her boyfriend, Jesse Linderman. On December 11th, 2001, Tanya went to a Hanukkah party before heading home early. Shortly after, she heard a knock on her back door. And when Tanya opened it, she was shot once in the chest and once in the face, both at point-blank range. A neighbor heard the gunshots, went over to Tanya's trailer, and found Tanya bleeding on the floor. The neighbor called 911 and started CPR. When emergency crews arrived, Tanya was pronounced dead. She was just 21 years old. Wow. Tanya enjoyed art and had dreams of moving to Portland to become a nurse. At the time, she was working as a caregiver. The autopsy determined that Tanya had been shot twice with a handgun 
Investigators found footprints, which indicated that the suspect had gone behind the trailer after the shooting and then cut through a snow-covered field before exiting on a nearby road. In a field less than a mile from Tanya's trailer, investigators found an empty briefcase. Uh, Witnesses claimed to have seen a person of medium build in a flannel shirt and hoodie walking along the road near Tanya's trailer shortly before the murder. In August 2002, police arrested a person on a misdemeanor. While in custody, the person told them that he sold a handgun to a man named David Meester around the time of Tanya's murder. The model of the handgun matched what police believed to be the murder weapon. Police questioned Meester. He claimed not to know anything. But Meester also didn't have an alibi for that night. Uh, Ballistics matched the bullets at the scene to the gun that had been sold to Meester. The footprints in the snow, which were determined to be a size 9 skate shoe, matched Meester's size and shoe type exactly. Meester was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder and first-degree murder. Soon after, a witness claimed that Meester had told him exact details about the murder, so police interviewed Meester again, and this time he confessed to killing Tanya Hart. However, he claimed that Tanya's boyfriend, Jesse Linderman, paid him $1,000 to do it and said he would add an extra $100 if the job was done before Christmas. Linderman, who randomly moved to Montana shortly after Tanya's death, was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. He pleaded not guilty and tried to place the blame on another man named Lane Thomas, Uh, Meester then retracted his previous statement about Linderman and said the police coerced him into confessing. In 2003, Meester was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, plus an additional 40 years for conspiracy. However, this conviction was overturned in 2009 by the Idaho Supreme Court. After a retrial in 2011, Meester was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences and is currently serving his time at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. Due to a lack of evidence, the charges against Linderman were dropped. In November 2003, Linderman was in court on battery charges from a 2002 bar incident. He was acquitted of any criminal charges. Wowzer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see why you wanted to outline all of this. It does feel like this is, I know that these were over the course of many years, but it does feel like these are some pretty significant cases for a fairly, for something that was, you know, known to be such a safe, small town. I mean, that's, these are a lot of of big ones. Um, Yeah. And that was, again, just, just a small amount of some of the stuff I found. Right. Which, which was wild. I thought I wouldn't find anything, but. Just a sampling. Well, listen, um, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the case uh, of Will Hendrick on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're going to dive into the Will Hendrick case. Of course, this was featured on an original episode of Unsolved Mysteries. It's season 11, episode 5, 1999-er. Um, Thank you for that. Listen, I I am what I, I am who I am. Um, but listen, where are we starting? Uh, we're just going to go into it like I normally would. Let's and do pretend it. like the last hour didn't happen. No, the last hour was no. important. The last hour, look, if nothing else, constantly giving. Yes. True crime. Yes. That's what you get. So, William... Ray Hendrick, better known as Will, was born December 24th, 1973, to Keith and Leslie Hendrick. There isn't much on the internet about Will's childhood, but I know that he graduated from Lewiston High School in Lewiston, Idaho, in 1992. Lewiston is about 32 miles or 52 kilometers south of Moscow. At some point, Will moved to Moscow and started to attend the University of Idaho, uh, where he also worked as a custodian on campus. In the late 90s, Will had a small part in a Hollywood action film. I could not find which one. Lord knows I tried. All I could ever see, it's only ever described as Hollywood action film. Interesting. What I wouldn't wouldn't give to know which one. Uh, And that brings us... To the day in question, because again, not a lot of info, so we're just going to get right to it. Throughout the day, on January 9th, 1999, Will and his partner, Jerry Schutz, remodeled their kitchen. At this point, the couple had been together for five years. In the evening, Will said he wanted to attend a party that was being thrown by their friend, Katie Payne. Katie decided to get a group of theater students together since everyone was back in town from the holiday break and classes were starting up again on Monday. Jerry said that he was too tired and he didn't want to go. So around midnight, Will headed to Katie's apartment complex at the intersection of North Almond Street and C Street. When Will arrived, there were two parties going on at the building. Katie's party, which consisted of friends from the college theater department on the second floor. And on the third floor was another party, which was mostly locals who were former high school athletes. Throughout the night, Will became increasingly concerned about a friend named Karen, who was having problems with her boyfriend, who was attending the third floor party. Katie told Will not to get involved because Will was inebriated and very protective of his friends and known to get aggressive when he was drinking. Around 2.30 a.m., Karen left the party. Soon after, Katie went inside to call and make sure that Karen arrived home safely. When Katie came back outside just a few minutes later, Will was gone. 
His car was still parked in front of the building, so Katie just assumed that Will went up to the party on the third floor. Now, I want it to be very clear. I am not shaming Katie in any way. In fact, I will outright praise her for calling to ensure that Karen made it home safely. But she knew that Will was inebriated and having issues with the partygoers upstairs, and that Will was known to be combative when he was drinking. And yet, she thought, oh, he's probably at the party upstairs. He'll be fine. And yes, Will was an adult, didn't need a babysitter, but Katie didn't want to peek in on that party just to make sure that Will was there and that he was doing okay? Again, not shaming her. Will was not her responsibility. I just find it odd that she called to check in on one friend, but didn't bother to check in on another. Yeah. Especially when Katie said she was worried about a confrontation happening. Her example was that Will would take the bait if someone yelled a slur at him. And of course, since Will was gay, there were concerns that some of the locals might not have been too accepting of that. And just know I am not making a generalization of people who lived in Moscow. From my understanding, Moscow was, and still is, a very LGBTQIA friendly community. However, I also know there was a specific group in Moscow at the time of Will's disappearance who were known as Christchurch. And from everything I've read about them, they don't seem very Christian-like. Right. But we're going to get into that group later on. But just to give you an idea, an article on uh, Vice.com quoted one local as saying that Moscow, quote, is such a sweet town, you'd never guess there was such hatred. Oh, So, you know, my whole point here is Katie was concerned that Will would get into trouble if he went to the other party. Then when she thought he had gone to the other party, she just shrugged it off and didn't check into it. Again, not shaming her. I just find it very odd behavior. Yeah. That's all. The next morning around 11 a.m., Jerry called Katie to ask her to send Will home as they had plans for the day. But Katie said... Will wasn't there. She checked out front and Will's car was gone. So Jerry called around to some of the other people who attended the party and none of them had seen Will. Jerry reported Will missing as he had concerns about Will being outside during that time of year. At first, Jerry thought Will might have passed out somewhere in a field or a ditch and Jerry was concerned about potential hypothermia. Jerry called Will's parents around 7 p.m. When Will hadn't turned up by Monday morning, about 36 hours after he was last seen, his friends and family went searching for him. During that initial search, Will's 1984 four-door Pontiac was found in a parking lot near Friendship Square at the intersection of Jackson Street and 4th Street in downtown Moscow. This is about 0.4 miles or 600 meters south of Katie's apartment. The car was unlocked. The front driver and passenger windows were both rolled down a couple of inches. Will's portfolio was found in the back seat, which Jerry said was highly unusual because it contained all of Will's art and costume designs, and Will would never leave it behind. Will's work keys were found on the dashboard of the vehicle. 
which Jerry said was also strange, uh, as Will always had those keys clipped to his belt, because if he ever lost the keys, the university would have to rekey the entire building. So he was always very, very careful with where those keys were. There was also a can of Squirt brand soda uh, or pop uh, in the car, which allegedly did not belong to Will. According to his friends, Will always had two cups in the front of the car, one for chewing tobacco, the other for cigarettes. They said there was never a third item. Uh, Police searched the vehicle and found no blood, and all the hair samples were a match to Will. Police found no evidence of foul play, but did find several sets of fingerprints. When the car was released by police, Jerry noticed there was mud caked inside the wheel wells. Uh, He believes that an assailant used the car to drive to a location where they dumped Will's body. Jerry also noted something strange about the position of the driver's seat. He said, quote, I remember when I got into the car, the seat was back as far as it could go. Will drove with the steering wheel right up onto his lap. So somebody who wasn't Will had driven that car that day or moved it. Will's friend Catherine Sprague, Sprague uh, believed that Will had left town with the plan to start a new life somewhere. Catherine said Will had told her he was often overwhelmed by school and that on more than one occasion, he had mentioned walking away from his life to go travel the country. But Jerry and other friends said Will would never voluntarily leave, especially with everything he had coming up. On the day of his disappearance, Will was supposed to audition for the lead in a play that he was very excited about. And on Monday, he was set to start his final semester at the University of Idaho. And if he was going to up and leave, he would have needed money, and he hadn't picked up his recent financial aid check. Plus, he didn't go home and pack, so we're supposed to believe in the middle of the night he decided to just leave town. Walk. Um, we talked about this theory uh, on the Brian Schaefer episode of the show, and in similar to that, I just don't buy that that theory is a thing. I know it happens, but in this case, I Obviously, it didn't. Uh, Will's disappearance made national headlines, with many news outlets focusing on the fact that Will was gay and that he had gone missing just three months after the death of Matthew Shepard. Oh, interesting. uh, Matthew was a student at the University of Wyoming who was brutally attacked October 6, 1998, by lowlifes Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. These monsters tied Matthew to a fence in a field outside of Laramie, Wyoming, where they robbed him, pistol-whipped him, and tortured him before just leaving him for dead. He was discovered by a cyclist 18 hours later. Matthew was taken to a hospital where where they discovered fractures to the back of his head and brainstem damage. Doctors determined the injuries were too severe for them to operate. He died from from severe injuries six days later. He was just 21 years old. McKinney and Henderson were charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. These assholes claimed they only intended to rob Matthew, and one of their lawyers tried to say that Matthew made sexual advances towards them, which caused them temporary insanity. Oh, please. to that I say, you're fucking monsters, and don't you dare blame the victim. 
A hundred percent. And if that was the case, then every woman on the planet would be allowed to kill every single man yep. who's ever hit on them because I don't know a woman who, regardless of her gender expression uh, or their gender expression or, or sexuality, hasn't had unwanted advances. So first of all, I, I don't even think that happened. I'm not saying that that happened. Nope. That's all bullshit. But nope. if it even did, fuck off. That is disgusting. And, and in no way a defense of anything. Again, if that's a defense, then then every woman on the planet would be allowed to claim insanity and murder uh, any any man who gave un- unwanted advances, which, by the way, happens yep. uh, all day, every day. hundred uh, percent. Henderson pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two consecutive life terms. McKinney was convicted and the jury began deliberating about the death penalty. But Matthew's parents insisted that McKinney get two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole instead of the death penalty. So with Matthew's story making headlines, it's not surprising the media would highlight Will's case if it was a potential hate crime. Some news outlets didn't mention that Will was gay at all. Uh, I found an article written in 1999 that referred to Jerry as Will's roommate. Which, I mean... Yeah. While that journalism is disappointing at best, I'm glad to see the case was at least talked about and put out there, because we all know there are so many cases that don't get that kind of attention or any attention at all. Uh, But despite the media attention and the hundreds of tips and reported sightings in Vegas and Florida, there was no sign of Will. Then, on September 7th, 2002, Two hunters found a skull and a jawbone in a rural area in East Latah County, just outside of Moscow. Tests revealed that the remains belonged to Will Hendrick. Despite a massive search, no other remains have ever been found. The cause of death could not be determined, but the manner of death was ruled homicide. Will Hendrick was just 25 at the time of his death, He was well-liked and described as the kind of person who would help anyone. Jerry described Will as the light of his life. In a 2002 press conference, the Moscow Police Department said, quote, These FBI agents have advised there is a good possibility Will was not killed by a stranger and robbery was most likely not the motive. It is more likely Will knew his killer someone who is familiar with the Moscow-Pullman area, as well as the area where Will's body was left. The killer did not want or expect Will's remains to be found. It is the, the opinion of the Behavioral Analysis Unit that there is a good possibility the offender would have left the area shortly after the homicide for what appeared to be legitimate reasons, but returned because of his own ties to the area and his curiosity about the investigation. Which leads us to the only possible thing we can do is talk about the potential suspects. I'm also very curious why they built that specific in the profile, but I'm going to wait to talk about it later. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, I think, basically, I think they felt like they knew who it was. And I feel like they were outright trying to call them out. Yeah, because that feels like a very specific, well... Listen, I'll save it. But I just feel like that's risky because it's like, don't start building profiles that aren't actually profiles you've built that are just what this person did and put it in the guise that you built a profile. Yeah. Stop it. Because look, I'm getting defensive. 
of the the psychological arts, which I will remind you, I am not accredited in, but I don't like it being misused. I'm going to quickly write down psychological arts. (laughs) (laughs) Just because. Yep. I like it. And uh, I, I guess... I guess tonight I got to figure out how to make a diploma to make you accredited. I'd like that in the psychological I'd arts. I'd like that. Or just get you some business cards. Add it to your business cards. Mm-hmm. I can't Noted. Wait. So, first off, suspects in every case where the victim has a partner in some way, we always look to them. Because police always look at those who are closest to the victim. So, is Jerry, is it possible that Jerry has something to do with Will's death? He claimed he went to bed when Will left, and since no one else was at the house, Jerry wouldn't have an alibi. Mm. But then, what would his motive have been? Allegedly, there were times when Will would crash at a neighbor's house if he was out really late because he wanted to avoid an argument with Jerry. Jerry was about eight years older than Will, so maybe Will liked going out more often than Jerry did, and Jerry was getting frustrated with it. If Will stayed at another house to avoid a fight, it's safe to say they fought regularly about him going out. Mm -hmm. But is that a big enough motive to commit murder? Probably not. But either way, I just don't believe that Jerry had anything to do with Will's death. But again, if you'll notice in all of our episodes, if someone is married or dating or anything, we always look at who their partner is. You got to. You have to. Statistically speaking, if something happens to me, check my husband. I didn't mean to say that in the most desperate tone. (laughs) Oh, trust me. I know you will. You're already building a profile on him. I know it. I get it. I don't think he's going to kill you, first of all. But second of of all, if anything happens to you, yeah, don't worry. It'll be thoroughly investigated. Oh, I know. Dog with a bone. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, look, I couldn't, even though it would mean my death, I couldn't possibly feel safer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your legacy is safe with me. That's right. Yes. Right. Like, look, I, I, I fear death. Of course I do, uh, like anybody. Uh, maybe not anybody. But, um, yeah, I uh, that is calming. Good. To know that uh, unless I, oh, God, I'm probably just going to go out because I tried to sneak Junior Caramels while I was in bed or something. Oh, I've always <laughs> thought know? I'm going to choke on a sandwich or something. It's going to be really, like, just, or a slip and fall. Something just really. Oh, like an accident, you know? Oh, it's going to be a slip and fall and that is going to go over my head. <laughs> and the last thing I'm going to think is, I should have worn a bra. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cover you if I find you. Oh, I have to be careful, though, because then they're going to, I can't move the body. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. Shit. Yeah, I don't want, don't put your DNA near me. I don't need you as suspect. I will have to protect myself first. And then. <laughs> yes, you have to, because look at our background. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Once they're like, they have a true, they had a true crime podcast? Okay. Yeah. And then some 
hotshot detective who's, good God, maybe not even born yet, is going to come yep. in. Yeah. Oh, my God. They won't even have seen Speed. I'll just, I'll, I'll get them, a, I'll, I'll send them a thumb drive with the movie on it. I'll be like, you know how to work this, don't you? Put it in your computer thing. <laughs> and I hope you actually call it a computer thing. I will. And then give me your card. Yep. This is yep. psychological arts. <laughs> That'll help. Oh my God. I love it a lot. So, oh God, I do love us when we derail. So my point is. I don't think Jerry had anything to do with it. Doesn't feel so. like there's a real motive there, I'll say that. No. Unless there's but something also, huge we don't know about, but yeah. I don't well, I, I agree. I, I think that's a level of arguing that's not abnormal, especially for couples in their twenties, even if there is an eight year gap. He was still in his twenties. If it was twenty one and twenty nine, it's not abnormal. I could see it. Yeah. You know? So twenty nine is still very young. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, have they seen Speed? No, I've got no. To go. Not a lot of them haven't. Speed. A lot of them haven't. Not everybody's into Speed. So, the next potential suspect on the list are the people from that third floor party. Mm-hmm. When Will first went missing, Katie, whose party Will was attending, believed that someone from that party was involved. Such as maybe Will and one of the party goers got into an altercation and Will was attacked. Maybe he went down at the party, and in a panic, his body was dumped in the woods. Maybe he was specifically taken out to the woods to be beaten or murdered. Police interviewed everyone who attended that party, but couldn't find any evidence linking any of them to Will. The partygoers admitted that they spoke with Will, but said nothing else happened. All the attendees were given polygraph tests. They all passed. Of course, we know polygraphs aren't infallible, so it's possible that one of them was involved. The partygoers told police that shortly after Will left, they heard a car leaving the parking lot going fast enough to throw gravel. Police believe that that was Will driving his own car. Also, a man who lived on the first floor in the apartment directly below Katie told police that in the middle of the night, Will accidentally walked into his apartment, mumbling and talking tough. The man said that he managed to calm Will down and get him out the door. Uh, police initially thought of this man as a suspect, but after a search of his apartment uh, came up with no evidence, the man was cleared. But that, to me, seems to suggest, as he was leaving, I assume he thought he was going to Katie's apartment, but then went down one too many flights. Yeah. And then walked into this man's apartment. And then, so this man seemingly is the last person who saw Will alive. Right. With exception to whoever murdered him. But that seems like he potentially did leave that party. Did someone follow him and wait in the parking lot and follow him out of the parking lot? Was someone waiting in his car? A lot of questions. So, maybe there was an altercation after Will left the party. His car was found downtown. Maybe Will somehow managed to drive there. He got out looking for something. Maybe he was looking for cigarettes. At that point, he could have been looking for food. We talked about this last time about when you're at a certain level of drunk, you're going to want food. Yeah. 
Uh, so it's possible that's what he went for. Uh, he maybe ran into someone who was looking for trouble. Maybe it was a random local. Maybe it was someone from the Christ Church. Let me say, out the gate, I am not lumping the entire congregation together. I am not suggesting that all of them are bad people. But some of them are, and those are the people that I want to talk about. Of course. So I had not heard of the Christ Church before. Uh, it was founded in Moscow in the 90s. And as of now, its congregation contains about 2,000 people, which is just under 10% of the city's population. The pastor of the church, who I'd also never heard of, apparently is a relatively famous man named Douglas Wilson. I think of him more as a racist and sexist old coot who has written several books sharing his insane beliefs. For example, in a book written in the 1980s, Wilson defended slavery, describing it as, quote, a relationship based upon mutual affection and confidence, where those enslaved had, quote, a life of simple pleasures, food, clothes, and good medical care. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. When was that book written? In the 80s. Oh, In the 1980s. No, I mean, never, never. No. But but the 80s is so far past when yeah. people could delude themselves. If it was mm-hmm. written at the time of slavery is my point. That's what, how sure. I'm sure that all yes. the, the, the white slave owners wanted to spin it was just like that. But in the oh, 80s? 100%. Oh, my God. Yeah. Again, oh, he, not defending the at the time either, but you know what I'm no. saying. It's just like that is way too far after the fact to be trying to like. Yes. It, we, we all know, Douglas. The jig is up. Oh, he is a delusional piece of shit. That's shocking. But also, who knows? Maybe that was written uh, back in the time of, like, slavery, because it turns out most of that book was plagiarized. Shut the fuck up. But, this guy's getting worse. Yeah. Oh, oh, he is. Uh, and because Wilson can't decide which type of terrible person he wants to be and has somehow chosen all available options, uh, Wilson also believes women cannot say no to their husbands. Because men conquer and women surrender. For more details on that, here's a quote from Wilson's 1999 book, Fidelity, How to Be a One-Woman Man. I'm paraphrasing this because it's very long, so I've, mm-hmm. I've cut it down just to the parts that's going to really enrage us. Great. This is a quote. A man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants. A woman receives surrenders, accepts. We cannot make gravity disappear just like just because we dislike it. And in the same way, we find that our banished authority and submission come back to us in pathological forms. Men dream of being rapists, and women find themselves wistfully reading novels in which someone ravishes the soon-to-be-willing heroine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Men uh, and, dream of being rapists. That's the quote. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's from one of his uh, nonfiction works. He also, it turns out, writes fiction novels, like the one in 2020 called Ride, Sally, Ride. Wilson says it's a, a novel about love, the crack-up of the USA, and refusing to back down when the world calls you crazy. The synopsis of the book... Oh, 
It's set 20 years in the future, where a Christian college student named Ace Hartwick destroys his neighbor's wife, who's actually a sex bot named Sally. Don't. So Ace puts Sally in a trash compactor, and uh-oh, soon Ace is put on trial for murder. This part is a direct quote of the synopsis of the book. Quote, Unfortunately for Ace, everyone despises his kind of radical Christianity, and in the fragile America of the future, all juries are fixed. I can't. I can't. Okay. (laughs) There's so much to unpack. I can't. I'm not even done with Douglas, but yeah. No, I'm I'm not, I'm going to wait to unpack it, but this yeah. is just okay. wild. Yeah, and look, I can't imagine what a bigger waste of paper would be than any of his books, real or not. Yeah. But, you know, that's just me. Uh, but Will- Wilson, Douglas, whatever we're calling him, has a following on YouTube and his blog where he spouts his nonsense, such as a post he had entitled, quote, a biblical defense of fake vaccine IDs. Not surprisingly, Wilson was also anti-mask throughout COVID. Of course. But what makes him a real, real piece of shit, on top of the racism and the sexism, is the fact that he has publicly supported numerous sex offenders. Yep. Numerous. I, I know of at least three, and I'm about to tell you about them. In 2005, a 17-year-old girl went to the local police and reported that she had been sexually abused by, I'm not even sure how to pronounce this man's name, and I hope I'm fucking it up, Jamin White, a 24-year-old student at Christchurch Ministry Training Program. The girl alleged that the sexual and psychological abuse started when she was just 13 and continued for three years. At the time, White was a boarder at the girl's home, which was part of the student boarding network that Douglas Wilson had created. Wilson told the officers it wasn't assault, but rather the victim and the perp were actually in a relationship that her parents had arranged. No. Wilson also fully blamed the parents for what happened to the girl, saying, quote, I do not believe that this situation in any way paints Jamin as a sexual predator. In all my years as a pastor, I don't believe that I've ever ha- I've ever seen such a level of parental foolishness. Why, mm-hmm. is, why is he even getting involved? Like, you know, like, you yeah, well, I think it's because it's someone is attached to his church, so of he has course. to be like, well, it's not my, no, oh, it's not him. Yeah, because he's a piece of garbage, yep. is uh, is why. Uh, somehow, the judge sided with Wilson. Of course. And even though White was originally charged with one count of child sexual abuse, one count of forced sexual contact, and one count of lewd acts, after Wilson's plea to the judge, White's conviction was lowered to injury to a child. The judge also decided that it was too harsh to label White as a sex offender, as he believed the case involved, quote, a homeschool teenage love affair. Stop. White was sentenced to four months in prison. Wow. 
Since the incident, Jamin White has gotten married, and in 2013, the piece of shit was found guilty of domestic battery after what? he strangled his wife. And that's, and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's it for me. Where mm-hmm. it's like, you had him, though. You had him. Yep. yep. Good for you. Good for you in mm-hmm. upholding justice, you pieces of shit. A hundred percent. I warn you. It gets worse. Great. Well, I'm getting my, my blood's pumping. Yep. Listen, I feel alive. Yeah. Sons of uh, bitches. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yep. Now, because like-minded people tend to run in packs, in 2005, <laughs> church member Stephen Sittler was convicted of child molestation, despite numerous, numerous allegations against him. Sittler pleaded guilty to only one count of lewd contact with a child under the age of 16. Douglas Wilson waited nine months before telling the rest of the congregation about this, which is insane to let a known pedophile freely interact with children without telling the parents. Also, Sittler had to write letters apologizing to the parents of every child he'd ever molested. Allegedly, he wrote dozens and dozens of letters. And some of those parents, he was apologizing for multiple children. Wow. Sittler pleaded guilty to one count of lewd conduct with a minor under the age of 16. The judge sentenced Sittler to life in prison with a minimum of five years. Douglas Wilson asked the judge to show some leniency for Sittler because Wilson claimed he was a changed man. So the judge suspended his sentence and he was released after 20 months. Oh, I know. And then six weeks later, Sittler was arrested for violating his parole after he was caught spying through the bedroom window of an underage girl. And then despite all of this, in 2010, the church, including Douglas and another elder in the church, set Sittler up on a date with a woman from the congregation. On their second date, the couple were engaged. A year later... Wilson officiated the wedding himself. I am wildly curious to know how much the woman knew about Sittler's past before they got married. Yeah. Uh, Like how in 2005, therapists diagnosed Sittler as a fixated pedophile and considered him a level three sex offender, which means a high risk to reoffend. Then Sittler's wife gave birth to a child, which... They didn't reveal to the courts because it would have violated Sittler's parole to live in the same residence as a child. Sittler, who was taking frequent polygraphs as part of his parole, started failing the tests, and that's how it was discovered that he was living with a child. His probation officer said Sittler, quote, had issues involving his deviant sexual fantasies regarding the infant, so he was ordered off his property and told he could no longer have contact with the child. A judge later ruled that Sittler was allowed to see the child, but only if a chaperone was present. Sittler's wife lost her status to be a chaperone because she failed to report her husband's parole violations. Douglas Wilson also failed to report the parole violations, but Douglas Wilson also knowingly set a woman up with a convicted pedophile, knowing that they were planning to have children in the future. Yeah. 
and there was no part of him that thought that was a terrible, terrible idea. But when this all came to light, Douglas Wilson was asked if he regretted officiating that wedding and being involved. He said, quote, I conducted the wedding and would do so again next week. So this is not one of those things where I wish I hadn't done that. It would have been much more convenient had this not happened, but I don't think we were put here for convenience. It would have been much more convenient if this hadn't happened. What a piece of shit. Shame on everyone involved in this. Shame on anyone who takes the side of a man who supports known pedophiles. And I pray that a good person is looking out for the well-being of that child. Well, it's doubtful, but I, God, I would that like that to, I would like to know that's going to happen. Yeah. And again, because these guys are everywhere. In May 2022, fairly recent, Alex R. Lloyd, a deacon at the Christ Church in Moscow, was indicted for possession of child pornography. He originally pleaded not guilty, but since has since agreed to plead guilty. We are now currently awaiting his sentencing, and I'm sure good old Dougie will hop in there and see what he can do. What does Doug have on these judges? Like, why are they just like, oh, yeah, you know what, you're right. Like, everyone, are they just all in the church? Is that what it is? Like... It's possible a lot of people from, like, high up in the church are on, like, boards in the city. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. But, yeah. But I know what everyone's thinking. This Douglas Wilson and some of his followers are disgusting. What does that have to do with Will Hendrick? Well, it turns out, because he can't stop being a pile of garbage, Wilson is also anti-LGBTQIA+, and openly against same-sex marriage. A quote from Wilson, quote, The legalization of gay marriage was wonderful in that it's now forcing every Christian to decide whether their allegiance is to the Supreme Court or the Supreme Being. God. Wilson is even gross enough that he will only ever refer to it as same-sex mirage. Mirage? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Grow the fuck up. You are an embarrassment, Douglas Wilson, and a piece of shit, and I hate that you are in any situation of power of any kind. Yeah. And honestly, I'm talking, I'm just, I'm tired of talking about this vile man and his followers, but is it possible that his followers share some of his twisted beliefs, or just maybe some of them share these beliefs, and maybe they'd be willing to attack a member of the LGBTQIA plus community if they came across one wandering around in the middle of the night like Will Hendrick might have been after that party? Maybe it's a case of Will being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, I get that that's a stretch, but I'm just pointing out the type that do live in that area, not all of them, but anybody that's like, this is a good man, aka like Douglas, anyone who thinks Douglas Wilson is a good man. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean, think it's that much of a stretch. Who knows? I mean, yeah. again, in this, there's, there's a stretch of time where he was not accounted for and he could have been out of the house. So it's possible he could have absolutely come into contact with someone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And plus, we don't know everyone who was at that party upstairs. We don't know everyone who was in the building. If we're in an apartment building, 
again, court of law. Yeah. Here we go. She's taking off the psychologist hat, putting on her law and order cap. Dun, um, dun. Thank you. Um, how properly did they vet everyone who was in the building that night? Is it possible there were people in the building that night that the police didn't know about? I mean, again, if you're dealing with, an, you know, a multi-unit dwelling, there's yeah. a lot of bogeys. A lot, of, yes. a lot of room for a lot of people being in there that you didn't even know about. You know what I mean? Great point. Again, in the unsolved cases, it's a case of no stone unturned. Can't. That's where we're can't. at. Can't. Yep. So another potential suspect with a religious connection is Benjamin Matthew Williams, who went by Matthew. Uh, Matthew and his younger brother, James Tyler Williams, who went by Tyler, were raised in a deeply religious home, and over the years, they moved around California. While living in Palo Cedro, California, they attended a Baptist church where they requested that a biracial family get kicked out of the church. Oh, God. When their request was denied, the Williams family left. Matthew served in the Navy for a brief time and was stationed in Bremerton, Washington. Matthew then attended the University of Idaho at the same time as Will Hendrick. I cannot confirm if they ever actually met. I just know they were in the same school at the same time. Is it possible they could have run into each other somewhere? It wasn't a big town. It's possible. Uh, While living in Moscow, Matthew joined the Living Faith Fellowship, about nine miles or 15 kilometers west in Pullman, Washington. But soon he grew disillusioned and took a hard turn into white supremacism. God. He started reading anti-Semitic literature online and in January 1998 was selling literature at a speech by the founder of Militia of Montana. Matthew also briefly worked at a private Christian school teaching science and Bible class. The kids say he was odd. He was odd? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He then made his way to California. I don't know the official time frame, but by the spring of 1999, Matthew was working at his own landscaping business and had recently hired his younger brother, Tyler. Matthew sold rare edible plants and ran a booth at a local farmer's market. Authorities believe that the farmer's market is where Matthew met Gary Matson, who was known in the area as a plant expert and had even founded the local arboretum as well as the farmer's market in Reading. Winfield Motor, Gary's partner of 16 years, helped manage the plant department at a local hardware store. On July 1st, 1999, Gary's father called his son and got the answering machine. The message was new and said the couple had become ill and were going to see a specialist friend in San Francisco for a week. The man in the recording sounded distressed, and another male voice in the background was heard telling the man recording to, quote, just calm down. Since it was super suspicious, Gary's brother drove over to the house where he discovered that Gary and Winfield had been fatally shot inside their home, 10 miles or 16 kilometers south of Redding, California. Investigators believe that Gary and Winfield were forced to make the new recording uh, for their answering machine before they returned to their platform bed, which was seven feet off the floor. The suspects then had to stand on chairs to shoot the couple while they were in bed. 
Winfield was shot seven times in the head and once in the neck. Gary was shot five times in the head and once in the back. Winfield Motor was 40 years old and Gary Matson was 50. In 2006, a community garden in Reading was named in their honor. There was no sign of forced entry. The only thing missing was the couple's station wagon. A week later, the vehicle was found more than 100 miles or 160 kilometers away in Oroville, California. Inside, police found two assault rifles and a shotgun. The police were then alerted that two hours after the murder, a man called a gun shop in Scottsdale, Arizona, and ordered over $2,200 worth of ammunition and other equipment. The order was sent to a was supposed to be sent to a mailbox in Yuba City and was paid for with Gary Matson's credit card. On July 7th, uh, police were able to arrest Matthew and Tyler for the murders. Matthew and Tyler were both armed with 9mm handguns, and Matthew was wearing a bulletproof vest at the time. But police said both brothers gave up without incident. At the time of the crime, Matthew was 31, Tyler was 29. The brothers were also suspected of setting fires at three synagogues in Sacramento on June 18th, as well as July, a July 2nd fire at a medical center that housed an abortion clinic. Uh. Matthew admitted he was one of eight or nine men responsible for these arsons. In September 2001, both brothers pleaded guilty to the arsons. Matthew was sentenced to 30 years. Tyler was sentenced to 21 years. Both were ordered to pay more than $1 million in restitution. In November 2002, while incarcerated and awaiting sentencing for the murders, Matthew sent a letter to Tyler's attorney taking full responsibility for the murders and admitting that he killed Gary and Winfield simply because they were gay. Two days later, Matthew took his own life. He was 34 years old. Wow. In March 2003, Tyler pleaded guilty to the murders of Gary Matson and Winfield Motor and was sentenced to 29 years to life. He will be eligible for parole in 2025. Interesting. So we know that Matthew was homophobic, and we know that he attended the University of Idaho at the same time Will Hendrick was there. We also know Matthew was in Montana for a while before heading to California. It's possible Matthew wasn't even in the area the night that Will was murdered, but it's also possible that Matthew went back through Moscow on his way to California. It's also possible that Gary and Winfield's murders weren't his first. To quote Will's father, Keith, who was a police officer for 38 years, quote, a lot of people that kill somebody and get away with it, they'll kill another one or two in their lifetime. So is it possible that Matthew killed Will before heading to California and killing again? Now that Matthew is dead, we may never know. But I do have one more suspect. Yes. In this case. The suspect is a truck driver whose name has never been publicly released, so we'll have to settle for calling him the man or the driver for simplicity's sake. Okay. So this man was working as a driver for a shuttle service that Jerry managed. Two months before Will's disappearance, this driver went into work and demanded that Jerry change a headlight in his vehicle. 
This led to Jerry and the driver getting into an argument, which led to the driver calling Jerry an anti-gay slur. So Jerry fired him. Soon after, the driver got a job with a long-haul trucking company. On the morning of Will's disappearance, the driver checked out a refrigerated truck around 4.30 a.m. from the dispatch in Lewiston, which is 32 miles or 52 kilometers south of Moscow. It should be noted that this driver also lived in the same trailer park as Will and Jerry, and that sometimes if Will stayed out particularly late, he would crash at this driver's trailer. Jerry believes that this man is responsible for Will's disappearance. According to Jerry, this trucker left town the day of Will's disappearance, but the driver's employer says that he headed to Florida for work. However, he didn't just go to Florida for work. He, After he got to Florida, he called someone in Moscow and asked them to uh, pack his stuff up because he wasn't coming back. Interesting. And if that isn't sketchy enough, when police finally tracked down the driver in Florida, he refused to cooperate with them. Detective Wayne Rausch uh, said, quote, there wasn't enough information for us to ever really compel him to come in and do an official interrogation. I was very, very frustrated over the fact I couldn't do anything more with it. The driver's trailer was searched, but no evidence of a crime was ever found. But is it possible that the driver came across Will that night after he picked up the refrigerated truck? If so, the truck needs to be searched, not the driver's home. But without any evidence, no arrest could be made. Detective Rausch, who fully believes that the driver was involved, said, quote, What I can prove in court and what I honestly believe in my heart of hearts are obviously two different things. Will's family believed he may have been killed for being gay, but maybe he was also killed for having Native American heritage. If Will encountered someone who yelled a slur at him or tried to egg him on in some way, Will's family said he absolutely would have taken the bait. Someone said Will liked to fight and was good at it. So did he get called out by someone or a group of people and due to his inebriated state, he couldn't defend himself and this person or persons dumped his body in the woods hoping it would never be found? Will's mother, Leslie, has stated she believed Will may have been killed because both her and her husband worked for the police. Leslie has said that her nephew's foster brother told her three men bragged about killing Will, and those men were people she had dealt with during her career as a police officer. Investigations have, or investigators rather, have never confirmed or denied that theory. Could it have been someone from that third floor party, or even the truck drive neighbor? Or did Will try and leave his life behind, but in his inebriated state, ended up getting lost in the woods where he passed out? I feel like he wouldn't have walked way out there on his own before realizing that wasn't the right direction. There are just so many unanswered questions. But while researching Will's case, I came across the case of 73-year-old Hazel Martin. It seems like there, I doubt these cases are connected, but there is like a weird coincidence similarity in them. Hazel went missing from her home in Princeton, Idaho on May 18th, 1996, 
after a night playing Pinochle at the Princeton Grange Hall. Princeton is about 22 miles or 35 kilometers northeast of Moscow. Hazel's home was located near State Highway 6 in an area known as Hampton. There was no sign of a struggle, and Hazel's purse and glasses were found at the house. The only things missing from the home seemed to be two pillows and the bed sheets. Both the pillows and bed sheets, as well as a pair of slippers, were found in a nearby creek during an initial search, but there was no sign of Hazel. Then, nearly a year later, in early May 1997, two mushroom hunters found a skull, denture, and jawbone in a remote area about 12 miles or 19 kilometers from Hazel's house. There was nothing to indicate the body had been dismembered uh, by anything other than natural composition or maybe predators, but the remains were confirmed to be that of Hazel Martin, cause of death undetermined. And yes, I'm sure that their cases aren't connected and probably aren't perpetrated by the same person. But I find it interesting that both of them vanished without a trace within 30 miles of each other, and their partial remains, or specifically just their skull and jawbone, were found a year or so after they went missing. Again, it could be just a coincidence, but when there's multiple similarities, I'm instantly suspicious. And speaking of suspicious, regardless as to who we think was involved in Will Hendrick's murder, his family believes the police didn't take the case seriously from the start. According to the family, police didn't impound Will's car until three days after it was found. The Moscow Police Department and the Lata County Sheriff's Department both investigated the case, but didn't work together and didn't bother to communicate with one another. Detective Wayne Rausch uh, said that he tried to work on Will's case, but that Jeff Crouch, who was sheriff at the time, took Wayne off the case. Wayne said, quote, He wouldn't let me get involved in it whatsoever to the extent that he actually passcoded the case file and I couldn't even access my own reports. There was a long period of time when I was in patrol before I became sheriff that I didn't even know where the case was at. When Wayne became sheriff in 2004, he said he was stunned to see that no follow-up had been done. Wayne has suggested that the previous sheriff may have known who was involved in Will's death and chose to cover it up. Wow. 23 years later, Moscow Police Department still receives tips and leads about Will Hendrick's death. Moscow Police Chief James Fry said, quote, We always believe there's always that one piece of evidence that'll tie everything together or somebody knows something. We believe somebody knows something out there. And if that person does come forward, then maybe Will's case will have a chance to be solved. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Hawksborough. Wow. Well, it's interesting because I feel like this is... God, I have so many thoughts. I have so many theories. Let's take one more break. Hit the can, get one more drink, and we'll be right back uh, to talk about our theories on the Will Hendrick episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. 
Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking the Will Hendrick case. All right, I got so much to talk about here. Um, all right, hold on. I'm just going through my notes. Where am I? I went back too far. Okay, here we go. All right. I've got lots of very bold theories. And let me tell you, I'm <laughs> underslept, I'm moody, and I can't wait to unleash. Um, I can't wait. All right. Lots of questions off the get about Katie. Because... It's interesting to me that he went to this party and she really seemed to be laying it on thick from the, from yeah. what you're telling me that he loved to fight and he would whatever. And by the way, the fact that there was a quote about like, oh, well, he would really he'd fight back if someone yelled a slur. That's his prerogative. That's oh, he's, he's allowed to do that. So I don't yeah. know why you're saying that as though that's a negative, Katie. And also, why are you pushing that so hard? Why are you building this up that it's like he absolutely could have gotten into a fight? He gets very combative when he's drunk. He always defends other people. He, he'll stand up for like it just felt like her account was very interesting to me when you add in the fact that now correct me if I'm wrong here. She went outside to call Karen to make sure Karen was OK. When she came back in, Will was gone. And she just she they were sitting outside together. They were sitting outside. She went she went inside to go call. God. And when she came out, Will was gone. So he was outside. Yes. On a balcony in front of the apartment? Yeah, these uh fr- assuming that it's similar to what they showed in the episode and based on the location that I Google mapped of looking course. at it. Of course. The apartment is three floors and it's you enter each apartment from the outside of the building oh okay so it's kind of so that there's like a long balcony on each floor okay why would she assume that he'd gone back in the building then yep so that's weird to begin with sorry i I flipped it there i think it was because i i was like there's no way she possibly left him outside and then assumed he went into the other party 
and then didn't go into the other party to make sure. Yeah, I, I can't get past the fact that it was, I'm going to check on this one, but I'm not going to check on that other one. But again, one. when she has set up so hard that he was so combative and that he was drunk and all of this this stuff, like that's where it falls apart for me that, that, that to me she knows something. I'm not saying that she killed him by any stretch, but she knows something. There's something there to me that she's not saying because yeah, that's odd to me. Why wouldn't yeah. you follow up? Were you scared to go into that apartment and you don't want to say that for some reason? Were you, did you already know he left and you're trying to make it look like the people at that party did something bad? Because from what it sounds like, it does, now again, polygraphs are not infallible, but it does sound like that party of people was all cleared. So with that in mind, I'm going to jump around a bit. When you talked about the car, I'm going to be honest with you, my number one gut instinct when you talked about the car was he drove that car. It just was like, I was like, he got in that car. He was drunk. He made a bad decision. I'm not judging him. But my gut was, he was like, I'm fine. I can drive home. And he got in that car and drove. Yeah. Stopped. In this case, to me, he was, he knew he was drunk. He probably had a sense that he shouldn't have been driving and was like, I need to drink something non-alcoholic. That explains the squirt to me. Sure. He typically didn't drink in the car. I get that. But that to me does not, that to me does not seem out of the realm. And then the fact that you said the other people in the apartment were like, we heard a car like squeal away and that they assumed it was him kind of you know, potentially driving a little too quickly. In that moment, I was like, that was my gut. My gut was that he got in that, he got in his own car, that he thought he was okay to drive. But then he realizes he was driving. He was drunker than he thought. He pulls over to get a drink. And then he says to himself, I need to take a rest, maybe take a nap and sober up a little before I continue because I'm too drunk. His parents are cops. He knows. I got to stop. Sure. Is it possible? Because I don't know if you've ever spent any time in a car in the wintertime outside. It gets cold. Is it possible he left the car on? He pushed the seat back so he could recline to stretch out. Sure. But he cracked the windows because if you crank a heater in a car, you're going to. Yeah. So you crank, you you, you crack the windows. Anybody who's from a cold climate is going to know what I'm talking about. It's like when you got the heat going, but it's like it's too hot. You crack a window so you get a little bit of air in there. This is a common. This is common. I can't explain the keys on the dash other than was he trying to get comfortable? He laid on his keys. He was on his side a little bit or something. He just took them off in the moment sure. to get comfortable. His dossier or his his um, a folder, yeah, I'm, I'm losing my words, in the back. That is the one thing that I can't account for other than maybe it was just in the back seat and it got opened or whatever. Like, I, I don't, I can't account for that. But to me, the rest of this, I am still yeah. buying that it could still be him. The keys, the drink, the windows, the seat. There's nothing about any of that to me at this point that says it has to have been somebody else. Right. Then at that point, if there's someone, we know it's very late at night, if there is someone, a 'er ne'er-do-well or or even a do-gooder who's seeing this car, it is more than possible that someone would approach that car either for nefarious reasons or... To try and help, to try and see, like, oh, is this person okay? Is there a person in this car? Whatever. Um, sure. 
it's more than possible somebody could have thought he was dead in there. If he's that drunk and he's kind of splayed out, right? Yeah. The car was found unlocked. Do I believe that he locked himself in there in that moment? He may have, he may not have. I don't, there's nothing saying that either way. What I'm saying is, is it possible that somebody, either a good person, probably not because that person potentially would have come forward, although maybe they don't want to implicate themselves in this. Somebody takes him out of that car or somebody approaches the car. Oh my God, is this person dead? Either can I take advantage of this situation or maybe I can't. Goes in to to rob him or whatever. He starts to wake up. The person panics, gets him out of there, takes him into his, his or her own car or into another area, et cetera, and goes from there. Is it possible the truck driver saw the car, recognized the car? We know that he was out and about getting this refrigerated van. Is it possible that when driving, he saw the car parked and thought, that's weird. That's Will's car. He's not normally in this area. Stops to check and see, finds Will passed out in there. Tries to help him. Either something goes wrong, there's a tussle. Perhaps in some way, Will doesn't know who he is in the moment. They get into a fight, something... You know what I mean? Is it an accident is my point. Yeah. Did it start that this person was trying to help him and then it, it, you know, they get into a, to a altercation and something goes wrong or do they get into it? Do they get into a legit fight? Will wakes up. He's in a mood. He's, you know, what are you doing here? You know, whatever. There's, there's some issue because this guy's been fired by Jerry. He's on the attack. They get into some actual fight and something happens. Again, you know what I'm saying? Like, to me, it just, I feel like it didn't happen at that party. I feel like he drove himself away from there. I feel like it happened at this other location. And I feel like it was somebody getting him out of that car. And then taking him either in another car or on, I I guess, probably another car. Now, again, the fact that we know that this guy had a refrigerated van also does not make him look great, in my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, in the grand scheme of, of... Everything being possible, it it just feels like to me, and also the simplest story usually being the case, that just feels like it's really possible. It's interesting, too, now going back for a second to this profile that the FBI put out. It does feel like they were trying to make it look very specifically like it was this truck driver. I don't know that I – I don't know because we don't know the details of the crime. So when you're building a a profile, from what I know, typically you know more of the details of a crime than just someone went missing. And then it's like, well, I think – and then they – they, you know, uh, remains turned up. Yeah. You know, again, I'm speculating. I'm not trained in it. I could be completely wrong, but it just feels like, yeah, that was a way of trying to apply pressure. So a couple other quick things. I just think also there is a possibility. Now, listen, dear listeners, don't come for me because what we do on this show when we talk about the unsolved cases is we talk about everybody. Everyone is a suspect because that's what you do yeah. out of respect to the victim. And I'll be damned if people are going to continue to get upset when we talk about people who are connected to the victim. Again, statistically speaking, it's usually the case. So uh, the last time I want to give that disclaimer. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Second thing I'm going to say is, how do we know that Will didn't call Jerry? I'm going to drive home. You're too drunk. Don't do that. I'm fine. Don't do it. Jerry gets in his car. I don't know if Jerry has his own car. Or Jerry calls a cab. Jerry, who knows? 
Again, in the grand scheme of anything being possible, is it possible that Jerry went to get him because he didn't want him sure. drunk driving, etc.? They get into some sort of altercation. That gets physical. There is an accident. Will gets killed. He does something with the body. And then he calls Katie the next morning to cover his own tracks. It's possible. There's no motive. Or sorry, there's no alibi. He has no alibi. Yeah. I'm not saying he did it. I'm just, again, putting out more possibilities here because it just feels like... And again, the fact that Katie... Not that I think that Kate... Again, I don't think that Katie did it. And there's obviously people that would still have been at that party that could corroborate that she was still there, I'm assuming. I'm assuming Will wasn't the last person at the party. I'm assuming. They have not said. Well, that would be interesting information to know, too. Yeah. Not that she has a motive, etc. But then there's a whole other world of possibility that opens up. Did something happen at the house? Did she bear witness to something? Is she too scared to come forward? If she wasn't involved, but she witnessed something. You know what I'm saying? Like... It just feels like the other thing that's un unfortunate and the thing that I think that you really hit the nail on the head about was this Douglas Wilson character and the fact that he seems to have a lot of control over the judges in that area and potentially this sheriff at the time who seemingly buried this case. Yeah. You know, that's just proof right there that people could have been living in fear of, well, I don't want to come forward because not that, not that they necessarily knew that Douglas, it was specifically Douglas Wilson that could have that impact, but just that, that they knew that there was kind of this, you know, these, these the, this influence that was being had, that perhaps there was people in these positions of power in law enforcement and whatnot, not that there isn't everywhere, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it just feels, again, like there's lots and lots of, of, of possibilities when you kind of, like, add that into things. Um, <laughs> a pastor writing about sex robots was a sentence I never thought I'd write down. Um, also this teacher that was teaching kids, uh, science and, uh, Bible classes, I was like, let's run some background checks. Let's run some more background checks guys on our, our teachers. Yes. That. Love you teachers. Love you. But I feel like, um, you know, somebody's doing something like being a, a leader of a white supremacist group. I'd like, I'd like to know that beforehand. Um, also, I'd like to believe that the, the good teachers are going to be like, yes. I think run I background think that, checks, yes, and I think exactly. I think that uh, I think that most teachers would be like, "We get it. We get that that's a part of the job, and we're not white supremacists, so you're not going to find that about us." Um, yeah. The last thing I do want to bring up very quickly, though, is that it does also feel like another layer, another wrench thrown in here when you learn that both of his parents are cops. That always does elevate. That it's like, especially in a smaller town, if you've been, you know you become the face of the police department if you are being, you know, called into different places, if there's some people that are running into having the police called on them more than once over the course of years, and these two seem to be working in law enforcement for their careers, that is an absolute possibility that someone would want to target your, your kid as revenge. Now, that being said, I just, I just feel like I just feel like it happened in that car where that car was found parked. I think that that is where. But so sure. for that to be a premeditated crime feels less likely to me. I'm so sorry. There's one last thing I did want to bring up. You said you don't think that Hazel Martin and this case were connected. And I say, why couldn't they be? Because 
what sure. what we know, first of all, uh, his his father, Will's father, saying that if you kill someone and get away with it, chances are you're going to kill again. Yep. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. 100%. Now, that's a psychological profile that's, that is 100% proven and correct. Now, if there is some kind of serial killer possibility, it is more than possible that someone could have killed Hazel, right? Now, she was out. Yeah. She was out uh, playing Pinochle. God bless her. Comes home and then goes missing. Similar yep. type scenario. Is found a year later. Her skull and job- jawbone. The only things found. It is completely possible that that person, somebody else we don't even have on this list, could have come upon him asleep in his car, which I will not let go of, and done the exact same thing and then moved on. And that this person, if we had more time and more resources like a police computer, it's more than possible we could potentially track a serial killer who was moving through states and time and that it was spread out enough that perhaps connections have never been made and never will be made that is possible oh it's i mean what i wouldn't give for that computer and for the chance to be able to map it out to be like yes this this all makes sense it's all the same it's when there's something similar that my brain goes oh that's weird and then it won't it's like you in the car i just can't let it go can't let it go once it's, if it's weird enough to catch me, I'm like, no, then I just won't let it go. Yeah. It was the fact also, the, the, the I love that I've said this, this is the last thing I'll say twice, this is the third time, but that Jerry was like, the car, the, the seat was pushed all the way back, so that means someone else had to have been driving it or had to have pushed it back. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. There's no, again, court of law that's not going to put hold up. There was nobody else's hair found in that car. There was no other sign of anyone else being in that car. There's absolutely nothing proving that he wasn't the person that pushed back that seat. And to me, if you are, you know, a little intoxicated, we don't know what level to which, and like, I need to sleep this off, you aren't going to, and he typically drives with the seat, the 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 wheel pressed right up against him, that's further yeah. proof that he would move the seat back to stretch out and take a nap. And take sure. off his keys and put them on the dash so he can get comfortable, get a drink from a, you know, gas station or whatever to try and, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, this all makes sense to me. Listen, that's all I got. <laughs> I think what you had was pretty great. But yeah, I just I just feel like, again, it's it's interesting and it's it's sad to me when people what's sad to, well the biggest sad part is that this um this newer police sheriff looked up the file which he had been closed out of years prior and then was like nothing has been done on this like they've just done absolutely nothing yep it mm-hmm. just feels again like if nothing else the one thing that feels like a fact is that for some reason something has been covered up yeah and that's of course chilling Oh, of course it is. It's, uh, there could be, I I mean, there could be many things, but I think it's a combination of what you're saying. Yeah. Is he was in the car, he got himself more comfortable, because it wasn't that far from the apartment. So I think it was, he got to a point of like, okay, yeah, this isn't good. I need to pull over somewhere. And he chose where he did. Maybe there was a store nearby where he got the drink. Maybe there was just like a pot machine somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But also there has to be something about it's being covered up by police somehow. Yeah. If 
Like, you you don't password protect a file. No. Especially an active, ongoing case. Nope. There is zero reason to do that unless you're trying to hide something. Yeah. And doing so it. Who are you covering for? Well, and doing it, taking off, taking an investigator off of that case seemingly for no reason and then making sure that that officer cannot see that, specifically that officer can't see that that case file. Feels like it's devastating because that guy actually seemed like he cared. Yeah. And maybe he was just getting too close. Maybe he was too good. Sad. It's possible. It's so sad. I mean, again, this is my biggest fear. Anyone who listens to this show knows Crooked Cops is terrifying to me. Um, but then to that, last thing I'll say, <laughs> which we haven't, but the, we hadn't thought about this. We've thought about um, ne'er do wells, meaning sure. meaning like criminals wanting retribution against his parents. What about from within? Oh, other cops. Other cops. Why would, because listen, you kill a cop, no one wants to solve that case more than, than the other cops. So it's interesting that he was the son of two poli- people who worked for the police station, right? They were both cops, yeah. right? That's what I read. So isn't it a little bit interesting that you would then torpedo the investigation of a case, take a detective off of it, pass or protect the file, literally do nothing to solve it doesn't that feel like there could be something pointed between that sheriff and will's parents oh yeah the calls coming from inside the house yeah oh oh 100 because it, it it does feel odd now that i think about it that it's like this was a crime against the child of two police officers and that police weren't going above and beyond because typically in those situations it's like all hell breaks loose, right? Like, it's like, we're going to do everything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, I mean, so sad, so confounding. Oh, yeah. I mean, the second I, the second I heard this existed, I was like, well, obviously this is going on our show. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's so sad because, again, it feels like, I mean, listen, where's the rest of the body? Where's the rest of Hazel Martin's body? I know. You can't just get rid of that much of a body. Like, I don't need to explain this to you. We've done this show long enough. Like, that's... Sure. That's unsettling. Yes. Oh, I have so many questions. And then I'm like, were there partial bodies found in other counties? And they just aren't speaking amongst themselves, like, between the police departments. Hey, last question for you. Yeah. What year did Larry die? Uh, oh, uh, 2005. Uh-huh. He had excavated, he had an excavating company and buried, buried a whole car once. You're so it's right. just interesting that there's two other people. He would have been alive at the time. Yeah. In the area. Yeah. With the means to absolutely hide a body and no one ever find it 100 percent. i am curious would he take money for that great question what's his son's connection oh my god would he take did he not get money for it 
did he have to do it because he owed a favor for getting away, getting out of uh, Gala's case? Whoa. Because Gala went missing in 1979. Yes. So, and he was apparently not seen as a, as a suspect, or they checked they like inspected his stuff and didn't find anything so is it possible somebody in that police department were like look i'll i'll make this go away and then very mob like was like but then you owe me and he came calling decades later and was like hey i need a I need a favor. He passed the polygraph, but refused to talk to the police about Gala. Where are mm-hmm. we getting that story from? The police? Yeah. Maybe he didn't pass the polygraph. It's possible. Oh, shit. The son, there was nothing they could do because the body was right there. He'd called 911. The first responders saw her. He admitted that it was an accident. Cops couldn't do anything about that. About Joanne's death. Correct. Yeah. But then when it came to Gala, well, the the body's not there, so... Without the body, you can't prove he did anything. I'm sorry, I have one more thing to add into this. Mm-hmm. Gala was getting those phone calls and the letter about you sold out to Satan. Does this yeah. come back to Douglas Wilson? Are they... They all did it. Is it all connected? And that Douglas Wilson had something, or Douglas Wilson's followers, I don't, I can't remember what year he started that church. In the 90s, I think like 1990 or early 90s. Okay, so this was in the, this was 1979. Is it possible that there was the, the early inklings of, and this is like satanic panic time too, which is a whole other thing going on. Sure. But is it possible that it was someone connected to him who we know was in with judges and all of this kind of thing? Is that sure. a connection as well? It's possible. It's not a big town. Not a big town. It just feels interesting to me again. Well, and then, and the snake keeps eating its tail. Tanya Hart, I want to remind you, 2001, she had, yep. was at a Hanukkah party. And then I want to remind you that one of our other killers later on was a white supremacist who specifically was was talking, putting out anti-Semitic stuff. Yep. It just feels like the statement that you read about, like, it's a seemingly nice town that has a lot of hate in it. It feels like there's something there. It feels like there is a bigger story here. And in a way, I feel like even if it isn't as literally as connected as we may be, you know, speculating wildly here, it does just all feel connected thematically and energetically, doesn't it? Like it's like it's it it's wild when you see when you pull out the lens for a second and you go, wow, it does really feel like all of this could have been in this very small town. Not very small, but small town. Yeah. All of this could have been connected in some way or another. I mean, it's again, truly bone chilling. Yes. Wow. Well, I'm going to be thinking about this in my nightmares tonight. 
<laughs> Look, I think we came to a really great place. I do too. Where you were like, how about this? And I'm like, how about this? And then you're like, and then there's this. <laughs> I know. Like when things start to come together, this is this is as alive as we were last week. Yep. Looking into the lives of those people just to make sure you weren't putting dick cream on your face. Exactly. This is dick cream part two. <laughs> Electric boogaloo. I'm talking about our uh, our feeling uh, alive, not about uh, the content of what we're talking about, obviously. Um, listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing work. Truly, you have uh, put together something that, again, is going to haunt my dreams and truly also <laughs> um, keep me up just trying to, to put the put the yarn to the pins on the murder board because I really feel like we're onto yeah. something here. Um, but thank you also, dear listeners, for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We so appreciate your support. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And of course, if you'd like a little bit more, we're going to go record a Patreon episode where we talk about some more um, content from this episode, some more true crime. We put that out there in four separate bonus episodes a month on Patreon. There's a live monthly Q&A. There's all kinds of jazzy things there. So check it out, patreon.com slash cocktails if you would like some more of that. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about the next week's episode? Oh. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Missing... Alberta. That's right, dear listeners. It's the second in our missing series of episodes on the show where Christy highlights a series of unsolved missing cases. We've started, of course, with Missing Kentucky and now Missing Alberta. So stay tuned for that. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Taylor Hawkins. Good night, Harry Styles. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.